Do you remember the 80s? Glorious times, the age of extreme fashion, heavy metal, break dancing, and mixtape. A strange and magical era which is still widely celebrated. But not in Latin America. They consider the 80s the lost decade. Why? Because they faced financial turmoil in the 80s, a debt typhoon which eroded their economies. What was the trigger? Two large oil price shocks. Skyrocketing oil prices disrupted their finances, created big deficits and surpluses, took their foreign debt to unprecedented highs and pushed their economies to the point of collapse. Mexico was the first country to fall. In 1982, it declared that it will not be able to pay its debt. What followed was a series of sovereign defaults in Latin America. One country after another was engulfed in the debt crisis. Brazil, Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, all of them fell like dominoes. They faced deep recession, high inflation, mounting debt, unemployment, and slow economic growth. Three decades on, is history about to repeat itself? Look around you. Developing countries the world over are struggling with a sovereign debt crisis. One of them has already succumbed, Sri Lanka. Its economy has collapsed, ballooning debt and shrinking foreign reserves. There isn't enough money to pay for basic necessities. Of course, this crisis is of Sri Lanka's own making. The Rajapaksas mismanaged the finances. They spent more than the national income. They allowed deep tax cuts and destroyed the economy. But the world did not help. Look at the global factors at play. The pandemic-induced slowdown, the growing cost of borrowing, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has increased food and fuel prices. These factors compounded the Lankan crisis. And they still persist. The fear is that the Lankan crisis could mutate. Experts say Colombo is just the canary in the coal mine. More countries are set to fall. The entire developing world is at risk. Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay. On the 15th of February, exactly nine days before Russia invaded Ukraine, the World Bank issued a warning. Developing nations face a looming debt crisis. The World Bank named 70 countries, 70 low- and middle-income countries facing debt repayments worth $11 billion. The report said this burden could crush their economies in 2022. Nine days later, Russia invaded Ukraine. The invasion disrupted supply chains. It threw financial markets into disarray and triggered a global oil crisis. The economic forecasts became darker and starker. In March, the United Nations released this report. It said there were 107 economies that face at least one of the three risks. Number one, rising food prices. Number two, rising energy prices. And three, tougher financial conditions. 107 countries face these risks. Together, they represent 1.7 billion people. That's more than one-fifth of humanity. There are 69 countries that face all the three risks, food, energy, finance, all three. 69 countries could go the Sri Lanka way. 25 in Africa, 25 in the Asia Pacific, and 19 in Latin America. Which countries are these? We'll start with Egypt, the land of pharaohs. It is in the throes of a financial crisis. Egypt is the world's largest importer of wheat. Russia and Ukraine were its top suppliers. As they fight now, the supplies are running out. Last month, Egypt said that its wheat reserves will not last more than three months. Next, we have Tunisia, the birthplace of the Arab Spring. Its economy is overheating. Foreign debt accounts for 100% of its GDP. The trade deficit has widened to $800 million. Inflation stands at 7%. Fuel prices at record highs. Experts say Tunisia could soon face civil unrest. 
The same warning has been issued for Lebanon. The Switzerland of West Asia, well, not anymore. In 2020, the Beirut blasts destroyed Lebanon's largest grain stores. Food prices went up by 11 times. The Lebanese pound lost 90% of its value. Public debt grew to 360% of the GDP. The war in Ukraine complicated things further. Lebanon imported 80% of its wheat from Ukraine. Those supplies have fallen. There's a bread shortage, a scarcity of sunflower oil. Lebanon has been forced to take a $150 million loan from the World Bank to ensure food security. Then we have Argentina. The land of tango, also caught on the wrong foot now. Inflation is paralyzing its economy. External debt is mounting. Argentina has defaulted on debt repayments nine times. To avoid a tenth default, it has gone to the IMF. It wants to refinance a $45 billion loan. It may give Argentina a brief reprieve, but it will not quell the civil unrest. Analysts say Argentina is staring at a long and cold winter this year. Some other Latin American countries are also at risk, like El Salvador and Peru. They face hyperinflation in commodities, tumbling bonds, food shortages, detonating prices and mass unemployment. Very much like Sri Lanka. Reports say both countries could soon face civil unrest. In sub-Saharan Africa, Ghana, Kenya, South Africa, Ethiopia could be the worst hit. In Ghana, debt levels are soaring, interest payments are choking the economy, a debt crisis looks imminent. In Kenya, the debt has climbed to $70 billion, that's 70% of its GDP. Last week, they got a $244 million loan from the IMF to weather this economic storm. In South Africa, the debt has reached 80% of its GDP. There's a looming threat of state collapse, a rerun of the 2021 civil unrest. Next comes Turkey. The currency is sliding, the debt is soaring, upwards of 54% of the GDP. Inflation has touched 70%. GDP forecast cut to 3.3%. There's a food shortage. Turkey is getting 50,000 tons of wheat from India. And these were just a few examples. The World Bank says that in the next 12 months, as many as a dozen developing economies may not be able to service their debt. This will be the largest debt crisis in a generation. What about India? It will feel the impact. A few state economies are already inching towards a debt crisis. In Punjab, West Bengal, Bihar and Andhra Pradesh, the debt-to-GDP ratio is identical to Sri Lanka's. On the 3rd of April, Indian bureaucrats expressed concern. They said populist measures in these states could ruin their economies and leave them broke like Sri Lanka. Now, here's the thing. The entire world is in debt distress. National budgets are at breaking point. Some governments are being forced to cut spending. Others are borrowing more to stay afloat. What can we do to stop this? How can the world prevent a debt typhoon? We spoke to experts and we've compiled a roadmap. This is what they say needs to be done urgently and collectively. Number one, manage borrowing and lending better. Creditors should offer contingency plans to borrowers, plans to pause repayments if the borrower faces financial difficulties. Number two, introduce better ways to manage shocks and crises. Low-income countries are always vulnerable to external crises. A high proportion of their debt is in foreign currency. This makes the economies vulnerable to external changes. We need to develop a mechanism which insulates them from such shocks, a mechanism to restructure unsustainable debts better. Solution number three, expand the common framework's eligibility criteria. What's that? It's a framework established by the G20. It's supposed to help poor countries restructure their debt. Well, so far, this framework applies to only 73 of the poorest countries in the world. 
It should be expanded. It should cover other highly indebted countries, also vulnerable lower middle income countries. Solution number four, promote alternatives to borrowing. Lower income countries face major public financing shortfalls, even for basic public needs like healthcare and education. Studies say if these countries improve tax collection, they can reduce the need for borrowing more. Fifth solution, increase accountability and transparency, both for borrowers and lenders. For instance, the World Bank has often raised concerns over the terms of lending by Chinese creditors. A 2021 study found that Chinese contracts include unusual confidentiality clauses. No secret there. They allow the lenders to influence the borrower's domestic and foreign policies. Sri Lanka is a classic example. It let China dictate its domestic policy in return for money. And this needs to end. We need a framework which protects countries from falling into debt traps laid by the likes of China. For far too long, the world has looked the other way. Debt crisis in developing economies is now a security issue. Relief comes too little and too late. And this must change. We need preemptive action, an approach that prevents such crises. This is the biggest lesson from the pandemic. Any crisis can have a domino effect. A small event in a far off land can trigger an unstoppable chain reaction. So Sri Lanka may just be the beginning. There's no saying where it ends. chair. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, I have a lot going on today and I strongly suggest you get out a piece of paper and obviously a pencil and write down and date stamp the show for yourself because I cover a million different topics today. So here you thought I was probably taking the last couple weeks to relax at some resort somewhere? No, I've been here working on research, but it's what gets my attention and what I do enjoy to do. So that is not meant as a complaint. So yes, I've been very busy and a few things I may not have mentioned before that I'll bring up here in the intro. I don't think I mentioned um, one day I decided to spell COVID, you know, the COVID deal, C-O-V-I-D. You know, because these people are all about the tricks, the words, the hidden messages, the magic, and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, what is COVID spelled backwards? It's spelled DIVOC, D-I-V-O-C. DIVOC is a term derived from the Hebrew word DIBUK, D-Y-B-B-U-K, which is an evil spirit capable of possessing other creatures and it's believed to be the suffering soul of the dead. The debuck is the soul of an evil person whose soul wants to evade the punishment and tries to stay on this dimension by possessing another body. And before you laugh too hard about possessing other bodies, there is this theory going on about how they stored all this information. I've been talking about them doling out information over time. So 
Divock makes sense to me. Now, they obviously came out and claimed that it didn't mean this, but I don't know. That's why we have our own individual thoughts. Think for yourself. What do you think it means? Today's show is going to be more like a novella, <laughs> meaning a mini book with lots of chapters. That's why I suggest you jot things down as you go along because there hopefully will be areas you want to go back and take another look at. So the idea of sharing my research is not to hand out stupid pills, but to hand out ideas and things that you will find interesting enough that you will go look for yourself. So go look at the website, psychopathinyourlife.com and click under the show notes. And another thing is I do update the other tabs there, which are really just show notes and the elite transgender thing. They have two tabs, um, but you'll have to look for yourself to see if I updated or not. So just in recap, because of this baby food formula deal, it's been an issue for a long time. I do a lot to cover the baby food thing here, not from the standpoint of not having it in stock, but the standpoint of how toxic baby food is and how baby food is a plant of the eugenics deal here. Because the plant supposedly got closed down due to bacteria, this Abbott plant, um, bacteria because of old equipment allegedly, um, maybe they decided they'd close it down because they didn't want to set it on fire, right? Maybe they thought, oh, we've set too many plays on fire this time. Maybe we should just close this one down. And yeah, it's still closed down. So anyway, so I cover that in much more detail and my thoughts about how baby food is likely a form of eugenics. So um, why were they using old equipment? Well, because for the last few years, they've been doing corporate stock buybacks. That's what they're all been doing the last few years. Almost kind of like they saw this thing coming, right? Huh? Just like Intel did with the chip thing. They spent the last few years enriching themselves to corporate stock buybacks. So what that meant was they did not put money into their own companies. So when this thing happened, they were out of supplies because they had updated their equipment. So that's how the, that's how the deal works in this country, right? If you want to have any looking for yourself, hey, go hop onto Google Street Views, okay? Cruise around this country. This country is nothing but pump and dump. Pump and dump, okay? And I will be covering why I'm saying pump and dump. Another thing, I have been talking about the cops in this country, okay? When they gave out all of that free stimulus money, a lot of that money ended up in the hands of the police. It was basically just a slush fund, okay? And the reason I'm bringing it up today is because Biden is almost breathlessly telling states to spend that money hire more cops. Why is he yelling to hire more cops and to spend this money? Well, people think, think, okay, that cops have been disbanded because of all this don't fund the cops coming out of allegedly blue states. Well, we know that's all just a trick, right? Because they just take the cops away for a while and then they, people then scream, give us the cops, right? So yeah, so this has all been manipulated to get the cops, you know, out in more force. So anyway, so they're already getting the stimulus money they've been getting all along. They gave them a bunch of more money and Biden is like saying, spend the money, get more cops on the streets. So obviously 
kind of a red flag to me, right? Because if you're going to invade somebody, like, oh, I don't know, maybe the United States, are you going to do it during the winter time? No, of course not. You're going to do it during these summer months, okay? Because, you know, they planned the war in Iraq to happen during the winter because, and this is just my guess, okay? If it's during the winter, you don't have to do that much, right? Because you can say, whoops, too much snow on the ground, can't move these tanks. So, yeah, um, him frantically trying to get states to hire more cops seems kind of like a red flag to me. So, anyway, so... Also, another interesting thing this week, um, I think it was Newsweek, oh, Calvin Klein came out with an ad, and they show a transgender man, which had been a woman, so this would be a FTM, female to male, a transgender male with a pregnant belly, saying that this transgender man can actually have a baby. Now, if you kids have been following along, you'll see quite a few flaws in this ad. And here again, I'll have it posted over at the website. This Calvin Klein ad, the person that's supposedly the man in the picture, that's supposedly pregnant, a few things stand out to me. I can see the scars on their chest from where they had breast removal, okay? That's what they do to the girls, remove their breasts. I can also see this person has a beard, okay, and a mustache. That leads me to believe that this person was taking hormones like testosterone to get that beard, right? So that kind of destroys this whole little fantasy here because women that become men and take testosterone cannot get pregnant. That is the big lie they're all covering up is they act like, oh, just take it for a while and you'll be fine later. So anyway, so um, the U.S. is just deciding this week if they should hand out $40 billion to Ukraine. From what I understand, this $40 billion is about the same amount of money that Russia spends on their entire annual military budget. So what are the people here going to get upset about people in Ukraine? They asked for supposedly $33 billion. Love those threes, right? But they insisted on giving them $40 billion. But that's still being discussed as I speak. But we know they're going to get the money. Kind of insulting, isn't it? Giving them $40 billion when people here can't access baby formula? Well, that's how it rolls, right? They have to say these things because... What better way to incite the left against the right than to say that we're giving money away and you can't have it. So essentially they're taking these working class people, they t they're taking their tax dollars to help families in another country. See how this will um, enrage people? So other things I'll be covering in the show. Let me see here. I go into Nestle Foods, the largest food manufacturing company in the entire world and also in the baby food business. And then I go into the city of London. Here's where the questions really start flapping around. The city of London owns the United States. And I'm doing an intro to lay out the cast of characters because I've spoken in the past about the Casgars. I think that was around the end of December sometime. So this all comes out of the city of London and essentially how they tricked us here into thinking that we were a democracy. 
And I'm also going to be linking to the man on YouTube, um, his website. I linked to him um, a few months ago. He is going through how the City of London laws and stuff all work. In other words, what we're ruled by here. Because there's a lot of details to this. They have it cooked up so that, you know, you really don't own your car. You really don't own your house. You really don't own your children through their birth certificates. Um, when you get married, you sign a deal with it. He explains, he's the man who helped me with this admiralty law stuff from the last couple of months. There is no reason for me to try to absorb it and explain it to you when you can hop over to his channel and look for yourself. It's fascinating stuff. He's a very nice man. It's just a man and his computer and a little video somewhere, and he's just is recording and explaining to you how these laws got tricked, okay? So he lays out how our birth certificates were tricked, how we don't really own our own cars. He lays it all out. So, and that was a trick that got started with the city of London, okay? So very important stuff to go take a look at because these Khazar people actually were part of Ukraine and the Russia area. Because I have a couple segments on who these Khazars were. I go much more into detail about them. So yeah, it makes you kind of wonder about them, well, ending back up in Ukraine, right? And we're at the letter Z, the last letter of the book. The last letter of the alphabet. So anyway, so um, another thing I pulled out of this, which I found very interesting, is... Um, they use this thing called Lend Lease Program. And President Joe Biden on Monday signed a bipartisan measure to reboot the World War II era Lend Lease Program, which helped defeat Nazi Germany to bolster Kiev and Eastern European allies. So he pulled this old trick out of his hat, right? What is the Lend-Lease program? Well, let me see here. Um, the Lend-Lease was really kind of a trick, so let me explain it to you here. So, I'm not going to be going over what this bill is all about because it's really just scrap. You know, what's interesting about Ukraine to me, I've been following Ukraine for, well, a very long time because of their um, surrogate business with the children, right? Well, up until the last year or so, when they started all these things about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, and his missing laptop, and then it was exposed that he was working for this company in Ukraine, and Joe Biden set up the deal, and that it was just this big illegal deal, and supposedly the people on the left... Uh, anyway, so anyway, so I was hearing about Ukraine from the aspect of what a crook the Bidens were, right? And then Joe Biden's son, Hunter, ends up with a missing laptop. That was Ukraine, right? And then roll forward just a couple more months, and all of a sudden it's like they can't send them enough money, right? So what's up with that? What's up with that? Are they desperate for money after Afghan money got shut off? I don't know. I don't know. It's all very suspected. So anyway, so um, he went on to say he's urging Congress to approve the next Ukraine assistance package to avoid any interruption in military supplies being sent to help fight the war. See, they keep talking about war, so I guess it is a war, right? With a crucial deadline coming in 10 days. We cannot allow our shipments of assistance to stop while we await further congressional action, he said. 
So he urged Congress to act and to do so quickly. Well, this is how the setup works, okay? Everything becomes a crisis. Everything becomes chaos. And then they create these thousands of pages of bills. Nobody reads the bills. See how they do. Anyway, it's just one trick pony business, right? So anyway, so what's this Lend-Lease program? Formerly called the Lend-Lease Act. And it was introduced as an act to promote the defense of the United States. It was a policy under which the United States supplied Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and other allied nations with food, oil, and material between 1941 and 1945. It was given on the basis that such help was essential for the defense of the United States. Yeah, somebody's always coming to get us, aren't they? This aid included warships and warplanes, along with other weaponry. It was signed into law on March 11, 1941, and ended September 20, 1945. And they had a similar one going on in Canada called Mutual Aid. So what they did basically, so what they were doing is saying that, well, we're not really in the war, but we want to figure out a way to send, uh, you know, wars of destruction and murder really to our friends, right? Without any complications. But to some people, what Lynn Least did was it effectively ended the United States' pretense of neutrality, which had enshrined the Neutrality Acts of the 1930s. So it was a de decisive step away from non-interventionalism policy and toward open support for the Allies. Roosevelt's top foreign political advisor, Harry Hopkins, had effective control over Lend-Lease making sure it was in alignment with Roosevelt's foreign policy goals. So yeah, I think it was basically a way to hoodwink the taxpayers and because they went on to say that Roosevelt was eager to ensure public consent for the, this controversial plan, explained to the public and press that his plan was comparable to one neighbor lending another a garden hose to put out a fire in his home. What do I do in such a crisis, the president asked at a press conference. I don't say, neighbor, my garden hose cost me $15. You have to pay me $15 for it. I don't want $15. I want my garden hose back after the fire is over. To which some senator responded, lending war equipment is a good deal like lending chewing gum. You certainly don't want the same gum back. <laughs> So yeah, then there's all these deals about repaying. Uh, it, it, listen, there's just too much to go into with that. Just consider this. It's a money scam, okay? So, and where would they be without cooking up money? How would they have ever controlled us without this concept of money? And all I've been hearing lately is, how did a baby formula crisis spring up in the world's richest country? Well, maybe because it's not the richest country and... That's the way they want to have it, right? Pick them off and give them all autism through vaccines and baby formulas. Okay, so other interesting thing I found. Zelensky, that little woman there. It was interesting, absolutely fascinating, that he had a chat with Bush. Bush, the war criminal from Iraq. 
I guess they don't remember that we remember these things, right? They bring out these liars again, so him and Bush have a friendly chat together. So, don't know. So, I will also be talking about how Elon Musk and his pump and dump works. One thing I found interesting is words they use, right? It occurred to me, kind of randomly like most things do sometimes, they use the word military theater. Military theater. Usually you think of a theater like you go there to watch a cartoon or a movie or something, right? In, but see, I think it's because of this is all a big stage, right? Military theater. In warfare, a theater or theater, it's just two different spellings, is an area in which important military events occur or are progressing. A theater can include the entirety of the airspace, land and sea area, that is or that may potentially become involved in war operations. It is also called theater of operations. So what is a real theater? A real theater is a collaborative form of performing art that uses live performers, usually actors or actresses, to present the experience of a real or imagined event before a live audience in a specific place, often a stage. The performers may com communicate this experience to the audience through combinations of gesture, speech, song, music, and dance. Elements of art, such as painted scenery and stagecraft, such as lighting, are used to enhance the physical presence and immediacy of the experience. The specific place of the performance is also named by the word theater, as derived from the ancient Greek itself. Theater, right? Are we looking at one big theater? Well, I would have to say, <laughs> looks like a pretty strong possibility. So, I will... Um, Oh, one thing that's going on also in Africa, see all this stuff with all these, you know, they're just now sorting out the batteries for all these electric vehicles, right? Which seems kind of crazy considering that they take so much resources. Not to mention they won't have a place to plug them in, but I don't want to get confusing over the details here. So. <laughs> so yeah, their demand for all these things, which is interesting because um, a lot of this stuff is coming out of South Africa. So I hope I hope South Africa holds tight because South Africa is going through a emergence of copper theft because um, mining, transport, and telecommunications because they use the people in Africa to get all these wonderful things for all these rich white people around the world and I think they may be fighting back and good for them. So enjoy the show. Chat with you soon. Goodbye for now. Okay, let's talk about pump and dump the favorite activity on YouTube. I'm assuming that people are supposed to have some sort of licenses to do these things, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. So what's pump and dump? 
Well, it's a form of securities fraud that involves artificially inflating the price of an owned stock through false and misleading positive statements in order to sell the cheaply purchased stock at a higher price. Once the operators of the scheme, also known as the dump, meaning to sell, their overvalued shares, the price falls and investors lose their money. This is most common with small cap cryptocurrencies and very small corporations and companies. While fraudsters in the past relied on cold calls, the internet now offers a cheaper and easier way of reaching large numbers of potential investors through spam email, investment research, websites, social media, and misinformation. So what's going on with the pumping and dumping? Well, there's a whole group group of crooks over on YouTube and that's all they've been doing all this time. What they do is they read the Fed reports and just tell people things like, well, inflation is just going to be transitory. Don't worry. Oh, but look at this stock I have here. Here is the thing. Everybody wants to be like somebody else. How about being like yourself for a change, right? So anyway, so I am pleased to hear that these crooks are being called out on YouTube, not as loudly as they should be. Keep in mind, some of these kids are making a million dollars a year on ad revenue. They could afford to lose this kind of money, right? Lots of these other poor kids have dumped their stimulus funds into these stocks in a desperate move. Big difference here, right? They are pure, rotten, and evil. I am thrilled they're getting called out. Too bad everybody else still thinks they're honest, okay? They're making millions of ad revenue and they're getting kids who are desperate for the American nightmare to participate. Well, the kids that are participating aren't meeting the same goals. Elon Musk is a master at it. He is Mr. Dump and Pump. Oh, excuse me, Pump and Dump. <laughs> Today, Elon is at it again, saying that the deal with Twitter is on hold. This will go back and forth for months. Months. They manipulate the stock so the suckers buy in. Then they dump it before it crashes. They screwed up before the stock market crashed years ago, and I think they've gotten much better and people are more dumber than ever. So people with those stupid phones called smartphones are logging on to all kinds of places. Robinhood, does anybody look at anything? Robinhood is not some group of kids that are just out to do good. Robinhood, the one kid, they say they're a gay couple. They're really a transgender couple, okay? That's how it works. The one kid from Robinhood, I mean, he comes from Romania, one of those countries, right? Always on my radar, right? Well, that kid, his parents both work at the World Bank. That kid also lives in Palo Alto, extremely wealthy. These are not rough and tumble kids out to make it. They want to present that image so your kids will think that it's a good idea. Who is taking advice from people online? Well, I would argue a lot of people is the answer. Just like they put that old man, Dr. John Campbell, he's just an old liar, okay? He's reading public reports to convince you this is another form of pump and dump. They pump you up full of information, right? He's reading these public reports. He's saying things like now he's coming to the conclusion that, well, I guess vaccines aren't that necessary. And then he swivels around, stares at the camera and says, but there's a lot of children in Africa that could benefit from measles vaccines. But I still think they're a great idea for old people. You see how we're always getting pumped and dumped information, pumped and dumped with money. 
it's all about lying and pumping you up into some false idea and some false narrative. Learn to look for yourself. Stop listening to people who their only credential is they own a microphone. So, because I'm really sure they probably have some rules about these things, about as far as not handing out investor advice. Just like I'm not supposed to hand out legal advice, right? Well, they're all doing it. One of the biggest ones is this liar named Kathy Wood. Kathy had a, has a fund called ARK Investment. Her company has robbed millions and millions pumping and dumping. Kathy is an interesting character. People seem to love Kathy, and they all run in a big group together, okay? Kathy, what was she pumping? Well, she was pumping Bitcoin and Tesla. Everybody's pointing and pushing Tesla. What is the deal? Nobody realizes that with all these grid downs and electricity problems and all this other kind of things going on, that Tesla's might be kind of a bad idea, kind of a rich white man's car. Well, what do you think you're going to use for electricity with your Tesla, right? Okay, I'm waiting for your answer. What are you going to use for electricity to power your Tesla? Well, I didn't hear you say much. I think Tesla is one of the biggest frauds around because it's run by Elon Musk. Tie him together to the space, tie him together. I mean, a day after he did the Twitter thing, he announced he came out with some new coin. They're always trying to sell you something. Stop listening to liars. Elon Musk also has a mother who says she's a famous model. His father married his, let me see, let me get this straight. Elon's father owned a mine in South Africa, and they say, oh, what a hero he was. He stood up for black people before them. Well, let's not get too crazy, okay? Elon Musk's father married his mother's, let me see, I don't know. He married one of his stepkids. Elon Musk's father was married to a woman <laughs> after his mother, but none of these are really women, right? And the woman he married to had a daughter, okay? And his father had a child with that daughter. Now, I don't believe he had the child because his father is really his mother. See what I'm saying? But the lies continue on. He got all of his money from dad, just like the kids at Robin Hood got their money from mom and dad and are now sitting in their homes in Palo Alto worth billions of dollars, while a lot of kids in this country gave up their stimulus money thinking they wanted to be like them. How about if everybody agrees today Try to be a little bit more like yourself. What is wrong with you? Why do you want to be like somebody else? What do they have that you don't have? Well, I don't know. How do you know what they have? They appear to have a lot of things. But anyway, the world has become one big pump and dump with everybody scrambling to get a hold of the ring. That big dollar bill. Well, that dollar bill is going to be going bye-bye pretty soon. So I would hold your position to being more cautious than rambunctious at this period because I don't want you sitting there thinking about you wish you had that money for a bag of beans down the road here. So just remember, it is all a scam and learn to do your own research. talk about tricks and schemes. I would contend, and this is just my thinking, 
that the U.S. dollar is nothing more than a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is a form of fraud which lures investors and pays profits to earlier investors by using funds obtained from more recent investors. The United States has this thing about borrowing money. Okay, I'm not going to get into all the logistics of it, but two of the people that this country borrows the most from, China and Japan. Interesting, huh? What's a Ponzi scheme actually? A Ponzi scheme is a form of fraud that lures investors and pays their profits. It was named after Italian businessman Charles Ponzi. <clears throat> the scheme leads victims to believe that profits are coming from legitimate business activity, for example, product sales or successful investments, and they remain unaware that other investors are the source of the funds. A Ponzi scheme can maintain the illusion of a substantial business as long as new investors contribute new funds. As long as most of the investors do not demand full repayment and still believe in the non-existent assets they are purported to own. Some of the first recorded incidents to meet the modern definition of the Ponzi scheme were carried out from 1869 to 1872 by Adele Spritzinger in Germany and by Sarah Howell in the United States in the 1800s through the ladies' deposit. What they did was Howe offered a solely female client an 8% monthly interest rate and then stole the money that the women had invested. She was eventually discovered and served three years in prison. The Ponzi scheme was also previously described in novels. Charles Dickens' 1844 novel, Martin Chutzelwit, and his 1857 novel, Little Dorit, both feature such a scheme. So they first started talking about it. I'm looking at here, Charles Dickens, 1848, 1844, excuse me. In the 1920s, Charles Ponzi carried out this scheme and became well-known throughout the United States because of the huge amount of money that he took in. His original scheme was based on the legitimate arbitrage of international reply coupons for postage stamps, but he soon began, began diverting new investors' money to make payments to earlier investors and to himself. Unlike earlier similar schemes, Ponzi's gained considerable press coverage both within the United States and internationally, both while it was being perpetuated and after it collapsed. This notoriously eventually led to the type of scheme being named after him. So the Ponzi scheme had been going on for a while. This Charles Ponzi person was the one who made it, gave it the name to it. I would have to say that it is my belief, okay, my belief that the U.S. government is basically set up like a Ponzi system. They're always taking in money to pay old debt. They're always stealing money from this to that. They rob money from benefits like Social Security. They rob the money that's in there to put money toward other things. This constant flow of money in and out one angle and in another angle. And all the while, it's a huge bankrupt country that everybody thinks is so rich and prosperous. See how it all works? It is called an illusion, also known as a money trick. 
And what's going to happen here? Well, I don't know. The U.S. government just approved $40 billion to go to Ukraine. Where'd that money come from? Well, out of the thin air. I think it's like 70, 80% of the U.S. dollar in circulation right now got printed in the last couple of years. If that's not enough alarm for concern, I don't really know what else to say to you. It has been run like a Ponzi scheme and pretty soon the bottom is getting ready to fall out. All this battling over the oil, the petrodollars, you know, is Russia going to be able to take rubles for their oil and their gas? Well, maybe some countries will start fighting back the United States. If they're smart, they will, but they're all in it together, so they'll probably give us the impression that they're fighting. But don't forget, this is all a planned and coordinated attack to lower the population with their eugenics trick here. And robbing and stealing is part of that trick. And that's where Ponzi schemes come into this. And the U.S. government is the head of the Ponzi scheme, from what I can tell. talk about miracles and magic and the books that they are part of. According to the Guinness World Records, as of 1995, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, with an estimated 5 billion copies sold and distributed. Sales estimates for other printed religious texts include at least 800 million copies for the Quran, and 190 million copies for the Book of Mormon. Among other non-religious texts, the quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong, also known as Little Red Book, has produced a wide array of sales and distribution figures with estimates ranging between 800 million to over 6.5 billion printed volumes. So yeah, what exactly is all of this? Well, there's another interesting book that's out that is getting close to rivaling the Bible. And there's one book that I couldn't find much about it, and it's a book about witchcraft and teenage girls. And some people said that sold as many as the Bible. But it has some pretty good competition here. Harry Potter is about magic, right? Having sold more than 500 million copies worldwide, and the Bible sold 5 billion. Okay. Harry Potter, that little turf J.K. Rowling's funny how that works right she's a transgender and everybody thinks that she's anti-trans people are just incredibly easy to trick lay off those stupid pills kids okay she's the best-selling book series in history the first novel in the series Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone has sold in excess of 120 million copies making it one of the best-selling books of all time. As of June 2017, the series had been translated into 80 languages, placing Harry Potter among history's most translated literary works. And, of course, it is all about magic, right? Magic, magic, magic. In most circles, miracles are seen as coming from God. Magic, at least in much of popular culture, has somehow become cloaked in dark layers of divination and sorcery. 
Even most stage magicians prefer the word illusionist to describe what they are doing. The better to avoid being painted over with cultural images of mysterious activities. I don't know about that, but anyway, so people feel that a lot of these things are carried out at the dark of the moon by masked and diabolic practitioners. Miracles, they say, are recognized as bona fide because they are performed by God. Magic is carried out by human agents at best and demon-inspired counterfeits at worst. It is thus forbidden in many Christian circles. So miracles are in, magic is out, okay? What is a poor believer to believe? So I don't know. For example, there was a quote in the Bible about Jesus in John 14, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you want to look for John 14, and they talk about magic and miracles and things like that. So, uh, when confronted with the fact that he has done things that look suspiciously like magic, Christian people will say plainly, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. I don't know if that makes any sense to me, but um, so there's this whole thing about Jesus having John do some something to do with a trick, and I'm not an expert on the Bible. I do believe, though, that the Bible was likely their first hand at controlled opposition. They probably wrote in all the bad things, right? All the fires and the destruction, all the they always have this theme that we're horrible people and we need to be corrected by them, right? So uh, what is magic? What are miracles? Is one bad and one good? Is one to be allowed and one forbidden? So magic has had a tumultuous, tumultuous excuse me, relationship to Christianity through the ages. There was the Spanish Inquisition and the Salem witch trials of the 17th century America are prime examples of what can go terribly wrong with well-intentioned people taking upon themselves to act on their best understanding of Scripture and enforce their beliefs onto others who may or may not agree. So, yeah, so the Salem witch trial, well, remember, this stuff is all made up. So what are they trying to tell us with the Salem witch trial? That's the question that I have in my mind. What is the message from these well-known things about witches? The Bible commands against the sin of sorcery, or at the bare minimum, advises against getting involved with sorcery. God teaches magic, but did you know that God taught Moses how to do magic spells? So in this Exodus chapter 4, God teaches Moses to transform his staff into a snake and back. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but you can go look at it. Exodus chapter 4. So, is it a miracle that God was teaching this to um, Moses, or was it magic? Moses learned how to perform specific actions that caused certain impossible events to happen. God called these events a sign, because they are intended as a sign of credibility for Moses to show to the Hebrews. So, God evidently, according to the Bible taught Moses some tricks with his staff and made his staff, which is a cane, turn it into a snake and back because God wanted Moses to show these tricks 
to the Hebrews when he went to visit with them. So, well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's just what they say, right? Um, this could also be called a miracle. So for all intents and purposes, we could also call them spells, spells, S-P-E-L-L-S, or hexes. This is a pretty clear example of God commanding and teaching what appears to be magic. Because after all, he took that cane or the staff, turned it into a snake and back out, not, not into a snake. That appears to be like magic to me, right? So what exactly is the difference between magic and miracles? So the miracles, miracles are from God and magic is not, is the thinking, right? Another thought is that miracles are done by God. So impossible events that actually happen can certainly be considered mysterious and supernatural. And whatever unknown or unexplained force that is behind them is therefore also mysterious and supernatural. So we have all these different elements, you know, mysterious, supernatural. Is it a miracle? <clears throat> so Miracles are defined as a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. Both miracles and magic are unexplained and unexpected events. So yeah, how they um, how they differ, I'm not really sure. In my mind, it appears to me like they are pretty close to the same from what I can tell. I think it's just a matter of who you ask in this. And next I'll come back with some relevant quotes that I found that you might find interesting. about the Bible and what some of this may or may not mean. First, I'll start off with what does the Quran say about magic? Now, keep in mind, I'm not a religious expert by any stretch of the imagination. If you have any better information and know more about this religious stuff, then by all means, drop it down in the comment section over on the website. Thank you very much. It takes a whole group of us to kind of put our heads together here. But what does the Quran say about music, music, magic that I could find? It is considered in the Quran an act of Satan, okay? In the Quran, Allah Almighty says, Solomon, which is Solomon, did not disbelieve but the devil's disbelieving teaching men magic. It said, Solomon did not disbelieve, but the devil's disbelieved teaching men magic. I don't get that at all. But anyways, it also said, from this ayah al Quran, it is clear that magic is one of the teachings of Satan. That's where we get this magic stuff coming from Satan here. I'll give you some quotes from the Bible, and then you're more than welcome to go and look for yourself. Samuel 15:23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and 
idolatry, I guess that means stupid. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Leviticus, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Micah 5.12, I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. Deuteronomy, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divinity or sorcery interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritualist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who describes these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practice, the Lord, your God, will drive out those nations before you. And I don't really understand what driving out has to do with anything, but okay. So, Revelation, this is a good one. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Boy, not too popular, huh? Calling out those sinners, those, I guess... Magic means Satan. I don't know how else to say it, but um, here's another good one I found that you might find interesting. John 3, colon 8 to 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born by God. But this is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. But who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, Sounds like they're pretty hateful towards us, so God's saying they didn't love their brothers. They certainly don't have a fond feeling toward the rest of us. So, um, I don't know that that much, makes much more sense. But anyway, so there's a lot of things in the Bible about um, magic and all of this stuff. I personally think that there's a lot of truth in this. I think that we just need to reflect on our own, see what makes the most sense to you. So... Then there's this thought that I was cruising around looking for other people's thoughts in all of this, okay? And somebody said, well, it's simple. God doesn't want anyone doing miracles but him. Of course, he's also stating outright that magic without him is a thing that exists, which I think was probably a mistake. So he got, he went on to, this is, let me just read what this guy said. I'm not going to interpret it. He said, that magic without God is a thing that exists, which is probably a mistake. That's like saying, I've got a delicious cake in the fridge right over there that I don't want. Make sure nobody eats it, okay? Forks are in the top drawer on the left. Or, you know, hey, you know what tree over there that you probably wouldn't have given a passing glance otherwise? Whatever you do, don't eat from it. You know, from a guy who created mankind in his image. He's really clueless about human psychology. 
I think they use a lot of what I would consider child psychology about, hey, don't look at that because, anyway, you know what I mean. So I'll continue on with this person says, as I understand it, based on my studies of religion and actual beliefs in magic, all magic involves, oh, all magic involves the invoking of spirits. It's not like Harry Potter, where you have enough magic in your blood, say the right words, and wiggle a stick in the right direction. Real magic generally involves praying to a spirit and finding favor with them. So this is contrary to the first of the Ten Commandments. All this whole thing about the magic stuff. This is contrary, okay? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And these people, remember, they want to be the Brahmins, the top gods, right? What the Bible speaks against is performing feats or tricks or illusions and attributing them to someone's own powers or spirits or demons or a god. This goes against the directive to worship only the one true God. That is the kind of magic you may say the Bible calls bad. So called magic as spoken of biblically, that which was real and not fakery as most was taps to the what we call the occult, darkness and evil. That's where we typically think of and see magic. It is not of God, but his own words, and is not of God, it is of Satan in the world period. So what they're saying is if it's not of God, it's of Satan, right? No other choices of God or of Satan. There's no white magic because people say there's white magic and black magic, okay? So, um, and continuing on with his voice, okay? If we are talking from a religious standpoint, specifically mono monothesic Abrahamic faith, it is because magic or magical powers are usually associated with the devil. The belief is that one makes an association with the devil or a demon, evil spirit, in order to obtain magical powers. Thus, magic obtained from this relationship is by nature evil as well. While the belief in miracle exists, which I suppose are some of the good versions of magic, these come as a result of a relationship with God. Hence, what makes one good and the other evil is in the relationship by which it is attained. However, in tribal religions and older pagan religions, magic is not necessarily bad, though it very much can be though it is obtained through a relationship to either spirits or polyestic gods, modern believers in witchcraft and mystical religions, I found, believe magic to come from a similar source. So people believe that, you know, it's coming from some sort of a god. People just don't necessarily agree which god. Some people think it's evil. Some people think, well, whatever, right? The long-standing tradition of the origin of magic is a relationship to spirits. And remember, um, they also call booze spirits. I think alcohol removes us from our core being, but that's a subject for a different day. Some religions classify some, or not all of these spirits, as demons, evil spirits. Thus, obtaining magical powers by these means is wrong. So they're saying that 
God does these miracles, and I think Satan does the other stuff, right? The uh, tricks and sorcery. What I find interesting in all of this, and then I'll close and move on here, is that they're relying everything on their their worship of Satan, right? This is the battle between good and evil, right? So they're weighing everything on the battle, their being on the evil side to win the good side, right? So what I find interesting is when you align with a psychopathic personality, which for all intents and purposes, we could probably say Satan would be the top example of what a psychopath would be, right? Committed to evil, dark, all that kind of stuff. Well, what's interesting is um, how do you make an alignment and trust somebody who's out to trick and kill the rest of everybody else? Are you weighing on the fact that somehow they won't get you in the end? Seems kind of tricky to me. I mean, what do they say, making a deal with the devil? I don't know. It seems interesting that these people are all on one side to destroy the rest of us with their eugenics and their evil and all this, you know, this magic, all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of interesting. They made a deal with somebody who is ruthless, evil, and why don't they think they'll take them down too, right? How do you put your thoughts into thinking that, well, me and Satan are going to gang up together and go after the rest of these people in this end world deal, right? So how are they so sure Satan's not going to turn on them is my question here. <laughs> I mean, just something to think about. You make a deal with the devil, well, you know what that might end up being. Let's talk about baby food. When people talk about infants, they express a great deal of concern and love, right? They act like they really care. Children, nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100 are used as a weapon. They know that those of us who are kind and caring have different kinds of feelings. So they manipulate those feelings by behaving like they share the same emotionals. They lack the emotional context, people. While natural breastfeeding isn't always possible for mothers, however, studies show that it is preferable to formula for a baby's development. I think that's something people have known since the beginning of time. Therefore, it would be incredibly unethical for a company to intentionally mislead or misdirect customers in a way that could cause them to not be breastfed. So where does this whole deal with baby formula come from? Well, there has been a plant for shutdown here that has caused a crisis in baby formula. These people work on the basis of crisis and chaos. What better deal than to cut off the food for starving babies, okay? What happened which triggered this deal was on February the 17th, Abbott voluntarily recalled its Sturgis manufacturing products and shut down the plant following reports that four infants fell ill from bacterial infection and two died after consuming formula produced in the plant. A whistleblower report was submitted to the FDA in October of October 2021. We are right now in May of 2022. So they had full knowledge there was bacteria 
couple infants had died allegedly in October of 21 months ago and they alleged that further health and safety compliance issues at the facility contributed to a formal inspection so somebody said they got a dirty plant triggered an inspection months later by the FDA so yeah um, and then I'm gonna read you uh, the deal with baby food is uh, more complicated than just this one lab breaking down okay because there also are allegations that baby food can create autism and if you remember recently I spoke about autism they're finding that may be a link to testosterone in the womb which led me to suspicions over all these embryo stuff right are they creating are they creating autism by injecting pregnant females with testosterone high possibility but there's also a possibility that heavy metal contamination in various major baby food brands was recently made public and that because there was a group of baby food autism lawsuits they were filed across the country these autism lawsuits asserted that the baby food companies knew that their products contained unsafe levels of toxic heavy metals and that the plaintiffs developed autism as a proximate result of consuming the metals in these foods yes I would imagine toxic levels in baby food would be a pretty big deal right does anybody read labels anymore baby food also contains as much soda as much sugar as a soda soda pop give your kid um, some baby formula or just crack open a can of coke okay according to and I'm gonna be going into Nestle here but that doesn't mean it's just about Nestle right according to some and I'll have more about Nestle in another segment according to some critics Nestle is strongly believed to have done just that during a campaign that has stretched over several decades the most prominent Nestle boycott was launched in 1977 to combat what was perceived as aggressive marketing of milk formulas in less economically developed countries Nestle is the biggest food company in the world with a market capitalization of roughly 231 billion Swiss francs which is more than let me see US 247 billion as of 2015 so obviously it's much higher so uh, yeah Nestle's pretty big right quite a trick with the Swiss right everybody thinks oh Switzerland they wouldn't be doing anything bad in Switzerland because they're neutral <laughs> well kids that's how the games played right so what happened with Nestle is this and I'm bringing in things other than just this latest thing because I've obviously had files on the eugenics against babies going for quite a long time and this gives me a good opportunity to share them with you so what they did how the game works and it's still going on right now okay remember I just said 1977 stuff was going on this is year 2022 and the same issues are still continuing right that's why they bring in their own people to act all alarmed and do all this stuff because essentially that just puts everybody back to sleep so whenever they say they fix something don't look away keep looking okay how they got it past people with all these ingredients is a miracle to me but anyway so not the point here 
So what they were doing is very sneakily in these hospitals in these poor countries, more, excuse me, milk formula samples were given to new mothers. Okay, so if you're a new mother and you have a baby and you're in a poor country, you will be given milk formula samples, okay? And the usage of the formula was b believed to have been encouraged by financially incentivized medical practitioners. Surprise, surprise. By the time the sample has run out, the mother's lactation has been interrupted to such an extent that the mother had to rely on this substitute. So giving them substitutes was a pretty crafty move, right? Because during the time the free sample was being given to the infant, well, the mother's milk dried out. So much for that, right? So anyway, so um, what they also did was um, in 1999, not that long ago, the product's nutritional content and instructions are often incomprehensible to the consumer. So anyway, so there was these baby milk being sold in Mozambique that was labeled solely in English. Portuguese is the country's official language. However, it's associated with the academic elite. The rest of the population speaks over 60 different dialects. So English is rarely used except within the tourism industry. So that's a pretty clever trick. Put a bunch of stuff in the market for babies and don't bother to translate another country language. Hmm. So mothers had no idea what they're giving their babies or how much to give them. Instead, these women had to rely on the often spotty, self-serving advice of doctors and nurses. Boycotts of Nestle baby formulas still exist, especially for the company's advertising campaigns that claim formula is better than breastfeeding. While Nestle claims it has ceased those advertising methods, one of its own internal reports found 107 instances of non-compliance with its baby milk marketing policy in 2019. What was that, three years ago? Another 2019 report from an outside group found that Nestle was still comparing its own products with human milk. So there's just something about this autism disorder here that I'll go over briefly. Autism is basically a neurological disorder, disorder that impairs the individual's ability to engage in normal social interactions, learning and interpersonal communications. Autism comes in different levels of severity and a variety of related symptoms. Autism is not something that can be cured. And also, they do not know the exact cases of autism. Funny how that works, right? They have made allegations that autism is vaccine-related. But we just do not know. And also, in this gender deal with kids deciding that they're in the wrong sex, you know, all this crazy stuff going on right now, well... The kids are capturing the easiest, from what I can tell, are the kids with autism. You get a kid with autism to focus on one thing, like they don't like their body, they don't like this part of their body, and get them online, those algorithms kick in, and that autism is a deadly, and I'm saying deadly, impact, okay? So maybe they've set the algorithms to go after the autism crowd. Who really knows, right? The exact cause are not known. 
there is evidence, other evidence that consumption of toxic heavy metals, such as baby foods, can cause autism. Many studies released over the last decade have consistently found a positive association between exposure to toxic heavy metals, particularly during infancy and early childhood, and the development of autism. This makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. Okay? Because what do all babies do? Well, they eat baby food, right? One of the first studies was published in 2014. See, this is what really gets to me. They really are, in fact, making this up as they go along, okay? This study found that environmental exposure to mercury during early infancy caused a twofold increase in the development of autism. A 2017 cohort study of children in Korea found a similar link between mercury exposure and autism. I think, now, I think, 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 okay. I think that if they could get people to get something like autism, like if they could figure out a way to give a bunch of people autism, you know, think about this. Autistic people would certainly be, um, and I don't want to say anything rude or offensive. Let's just look at this just realistically, okay? Autistic people would be easier to manage if they could get past their complicated relationships, okay? So did they intentionally give all these kids autism? Hey, who knows, right? These people would be willing to kill anybody on a dime. So you can't really ever say, oh no, that couldn't possibly happen <laughs> because it possibly could happen, right? In 2019, researchers at the University of Buffalo, that's in New York, published the results of an extensive study on the association between children's exposure to arsenic and autism. The analysis concluded there is consistent evidence supporting a positive association between early life inorganic arsenic exposure and autism diagnosis. Similar results were observed in another systematic review and meta-analysis published in 2020 by the researchers at the State University of New York. This study found a similar connection between autism and exposure to cadmium and mercury. So yeah, there was a, uh, they know this is going on, right? I mean, this is not like some mystery um, because what happens was um, there was a congressional report and out of that spun this baby food autism lawsuits, okay? Um, the report confirmed what baby food lawyers have been saying long before these autism lawsuits have been taken seriously. Baby food manufacturers were aware their food contained unsafe levels of heavy metals. Some baby food companies have ignored their internal testing procedures for detecting heavy metals in their products. So, uh, yeah, I guess what they're doing is they're just flat out ignoring them, right? What they're saying is many of these companies violated their internal company standards in doing so. So it is not dramatic to say that it is putting profits over babies. Other manufacturers, such as Haynes Celestial, simply don't bother to test their products for heavy metal contamination levels. Some companies, such as Plum Organics and Sprout Food, refused to cooperate with the congressional investigation, so we don't know what testing they may have done on their products. All these baby food companies either knew 
or should have known about the scientific research linking exposure to heavy metals in baby foods and that was causing autism. There's universal agreement on lead in baby food. Lead is a heavy metal that is a known neurotoxin and carcinogen. Lead is readily absorbed into body tissue and is hard to expel. This makes lead harmful for longer. Oh boy. This is not just the musing of a lawyer looking for a, to file a baby food autism lawsuit. There is widespread agreement on the perils of children consuming lead. For example, CDC, Centers for Disease Control, they say no safe blood level, no safe blood lead level has been identified. In other words, there's no safe lead, okay? <laughs> Lead's not good. The Food and Drug Administration, they say there is no known identified safe blood test lead level. So they all say the World Health Organization, who are you going to call? The neurological and behavioral effects of lead are believed to be irreversible. There is no safe blood lead concentration. The American Medical Association, AMA, also known as the American Murder Association, we know that there is no safe level of lead. American Pediatrics Association, there is no safe level of lead exposure in children. So, and they also, the American Pediatric Association went on to say there's last, lasting decreases in cognitive documentation in children with blood levels as low as 5 micrograms. Lead is obviously not good to have in the blood of children. So, the House report on baby food found that up to 177 times more than the levels of lead were deemed acceptable for adults. So why do we continue to allow lead in baby food? That is a really key question here, right? In 2021, and we're in 2022, this was one year ago, maybe even eight months ago, right? A U.S. Congressional Subcommittee reported that numerous popular baby food products, including infant rice cereal, teething biscuits, purees, rice cakes, and others, contain dangerously high levels of arsenic, mercury, lead, and cadmium. Shockingly, Happy Family Organics, Gerber, Haines Celestials, Beechnut, Plum Organics, and Walmart's brand, which is called Parent's Choice, and Sprout Organics, knowingly sold tainted baby food to unsuspecting parents, according to the report. So last year, or within the last 12 months, all these people, all these companies, knowingly sold toxic food for babies, okay? Okay, numerous studies have linked toxic heavy metal exposure to behavioral impairments. The link is especially pronounced among babies and young children whose brains are still developing. Even at low levels, exposure to heavy metals can cause severe and irreversible damage to a neurological development in children. Yeah, um, I think that I can pretty much stop here. I think you get the idea that uh, babies shouldn't be eating this kind of stuff, right? Um, yeah, it is um, pretty crazy. And I'll be talking, um, well, I don't know. When I put together all these segments, it's sometimes I kind of lose track for a few minutes. But anyway, so... Yeah, uh, I have a point here, and I will be getting to that when I talk about the money that they're approving to send to Ukraine. 
Um, but anyways, let me see. Um, wood heavy metals have been found. Arsenic, cadmium, lead, mercury, and aluminum. So manufacturers allow baby food contaminated with heavy metals to remain on shelf, lawmakers say. This was on September the 30th, 2021. So that was what, six months ago? According to CNN, Gerber and Beechnut failed to properly test and remove baby foods with dangerous levels of inorganic arsenic from the market. While Sprout Foods, Walmarts, and Plum Organics, formerly owned by Campbell Soup, were lax in testing and controlling for heavy metals such as lead, mercury, and cadmium. Boy, these people are really on the ball, aren't they? This is how eugenics works, right? This is exactly how eugenics works. Today's report reveals that companies not only underreport the high levels of toxic content in their baby food, but also knowingly keep toxic products on the market. Several baby food manufacturers CNN contacted disagree with the subcommittee's assessment. Oh, of course they do. And all say they are committed to working closely with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. <laughs> Arsenic and other heavy metals are natural elements found in soil, water, and air. Rice, which is a common ingredient in baby syrup, is grown submerged in water and especially good at absorbing inorganic arsenic, the most toxic form. So I think rice is what you want to look at for the most. But I'm not going to be handing you advice on what to feed babies here, okay? It looks like a landmine to me that I'd be very careful navigating. So 95% of tested baby foods in the U.S. contain toxic metals. So yeah, I think that we get the picture here. Um, they tested over 168 baby foods manufactured here in this country. They found that 95% contain lead, 75% contain arsenic, 75% contain cadmium, and 32% contain mercury. One-fourth of the baby foods contained all four heavy metals. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I'm not going to get into all the, uh, uh, in May, the state of Alaska conducted a FDA-funded analysis of beech nuts and Gerber instant rice cereals and found multiple samples contained more inorganic arsenic than the FDA's 100 parts per billion limit. So yeah, babies are getting arsenic in their rice. So in early June, they did do some recalls. I'm not going to get into all this because basically it's BS, okay? You get the point here. They're killing the babies with food, okay? Uh, so they're wiping us all out in all kinds of different ways, right? Um, Walmart Senior Director of National Media Relations, Randy Hargrove, told CNN, that the company had always required that our supplier products meet the guidelines established by the FDA. Our specifications have always been aligned with or below the FDA requirements for naturally occurring events. And the FDA notices in April that its testing shows that children are not an immediate health risk to exposure. So <laughs> I guess according to Walmart, they've looked at all the data that I just read to you and uh, they said that this isn't true. Okay, well, who are you going to believe, right? Um, in April, released cited by Walmart, the FDA also noted that research has shown reducing exposure, yeah, reducing exposure is better for kids, right? 
In both reports, the subcommittee recommended, so here's where they get these recommendations, right? Let's not just pull this stuff off the shelf because it's killing babies. Let's make some recommendations that these maniacs will ignore. So they made recommendations that baby food industry voluntarily test the fried product to be sold and address the product of toxic metals. See, that's that interesting. In both reports, it is voluntarily. Okay. So, <sighs> they went on to say, based on my subcommittee's findings, I'm urgently calling on the baby food industry to immediately end harmful practices and conduct finished product testing, they said in a statement. In addition, this subcommittee just yelled at the FDA and said, go fix it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're urging the FDA to move faster in its efforts to establish specific regulations and mandate testing of final baby food products, not just the ingredients. See, what they're doing is they seem to be testing the ingredients, but not the final food product. There's always something to split the hairs, right? In March, the FDA told baby food manufacturers they must consider toxic chemicals when they test their baby food for potential hazards. But the agency was criticized for not quickly setting concrete rules to remove toxic heavy metals from all baby foods. Well, I don't know about any of this stuff. It sounds like it is all a big scam. There is some action for parents about how to make the rice more toxic. And I'm not going to read it here because I'm not going to be giving you any kind of advice about what to feed babies. And also, there's another thing here which I will add before I close off this horrifying segment, which I'm trying not to get too excitable over. They're also trying to advise that not adding sugar for babies. And I can't find the report here, so I'll just tell you because I remember these things. Okay, they give, I think it's two teaspoons or something per little dose of baby food. So if you give somebody one dose of this baby food or whatever, you're essentially giving them a can of soda is what you're giving them, okay, because of all the sugar they put in these things. The group's investigation also found carrots and sweet potatoes to be, be among those most contaminated with lead and cadmium. Carrot, Carrots and sweet potatoes okay but don't eliminate carrots and sweet potatoes entirely healthy babies they advise because they are full of vitamin a and other key nutrients. so what they're saying is a lot of these baby foods are just carrots and sweet potatoes they're really getting them on that track for the sweet taste aren't they and they went on to say instead serve a variety of fruits and vegetables instead of serving the same thing every day this avoids accidentally concentrating any particular contaminant in a child's diet. So yeah, rotate your food so you don't poison your child as quickly, right? <laughs> Boy, this is something else. Okay, the Healthy Babies Analysis found parents can reduce their baby's risk of exposure to lead and cadmium by taking these steps. And you'll have to find out those steps. I'm not interested in repeating them because I really... They say, they say that when carrots and sweet potatoes are used, peel them, do this and that. I don't want to toe the line here and be giving you advice about how to feed babies. Just to take my word for it. Highly dangerous thing that's going on here now. We have come together at this summit at a critical time on behalf of our children. This is the first step with many more to come. We have a lot of work still to do, but there is no doubt 
With Speaker Pelosi at the helm, we have brought powerful change to the Congress, change that will make a big difference in the everyday lives of our children and parents for years to come. When I was sworn in as Speaker, I accepted this gavel. And when I did, I opened the House of Representatives on behalf of all of America's children. All of America's children. We cannot do justice to our own children unless every child in America has all the opportunity that our children and grandchildren have. And that is what the purpose of this summit is. We're going to have millions of more successful children uh, because of the impact of the work of this summit on the work of the United States Congress. We control uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in investments in children, both at health and education and well-being. But we need to be better able to apply evidence-based approaches to our work. The premise of today's summit is simple that focusing on children, particularly at an early age, is not only the right thing to do, but also the smart thing for our country and our economy. Compelling new research in early childhood and brain development concludes that the first years of life have, er have much greater and a lasting impact on a child's future growth than we previously understood. With science telling us that early childhood experiences influence the very architecture and the chemistry of the developing brain, it would be profoundly irresponsible for us as policymakers not to take this science and integrate it into everything that we do. Let's talk about Nestle. They are much more than a chocolate maker. Who are they? You'll have to also hang in there because I've been, I have had files on Nestle for a very long time. So because of the baby food issue, I revisited my files and it's always good to keep looking, right? Because I found things about Nestle interesting that I had kind of not focused on in the past. So let me go over some a little bit of the history of Nestle. It's a Swiss, okay? So that, that gives us the idea it's made in Switzerland, right? So it's a Swiss multinational food and drink processing conglomerate corporation headquartered in Vevey, Vaud, Switzerland. It is the largest publicly held company in the world measured by revenue and other metrics since since 19 since 2014 excuse me and it i don't know what the more recent data is probably just off the charts by now but it ranked 64 in the forbes global 500 in 2017 but you know all these companies like double their profits in the last few years but anyway so it's number 33 in the 2016 edition of Forbes. So yeah, it's basically the largest company. We can pretty much rest on that, right? So Nestle's products include baby food, some including human milk, medical food, bottled water, breakfast cereals, coffee and tea, confectionaries, dairy products, ice cream, frozen food, pet foods, and snacks. 29 of Nestle's brands have an annual sale of over, I don't know, 
US 1.1 billion, including Nespresso, Nescafe, Kit Kat candy bars, Smarties, Nesquik, Stouffer's, Vitel, and Maggie. Nestle has 447 factories, operates in 189 countries, and employs around 339,000 people. It is also one of the main shareholders of L'Oreal, the world's greatest cos or largest, <laughs> largest, ask them, they probably tell you it's the world's greatest cosmetic company, but it's the world's largest cosmetic company. Nestle was formed in 1905 by a merger of the Anglo-Swiss Milk Company that was established in 1866. Notice that date, 1866. Funny how I keep circling around that date. By brothers George and Charles Page and Farine Lacti Herne Nestle. Those three people. Three, of course, right? It was founded in 1867. Okay, so I'm a confused here. Yeah, Nestle was founded by, by Henry Nestle, 1867. Okay, the company grew significantly during the First World War. Funny how that happens, right? And again, following the Second War, expanding its offerings beyond its early condensed milk and infant formula products. The company has made a number of corporate acquisitions, including Cross and Blackwell in 1950, Find Us in 1963, Libby's in 1971, Tree Macintosh 1988, and Gerber Baby Foods 2007. Boy, did my eyes zoom in on that one, right? Pretty iconic American food company, right? The company has been associated with very various controversies facing criticism and boycotts over its marketing of baby formula as an alternative to breastfeeding in developing countries. So they tell mothers in developing countries that drink our formula, right? Part of that scam. And also it's been under fire for its reliance on child labor in cocoa production and its production and promotion of bottled water. So yeah, so um, so Henry is the one that's listed as the original founder. So of course my eyes were rotating all around Henry to see what was the deal with him or her, however you want to look at this. Okay, let's talk about that. Henrique Nestle was born on 10 August, 1814 in Frankfurt. Bingo. <laughs> Why, why, why is Henrik Nestle from Germany? What a surprise, right? I just fell over in shock at this one, right? Okay, Henrik was the 11th of 14 children of Johann Ulrich Matthias Nestle and Anna Marie Catherine Ehrman. Nestle's father, by tradition, inherited the business of his father, Johann Ulrich Nestle. So, anyways, the brother also became a mayor of Frankfurt. <laughs> I would say they're pretty well connected with Germany if I wanted to take a wild guess here, right? So, the Frankfurt, the Nestle, excuse me, the Nestle family has its roots in western Swabia, predominantly in the boroughs of the Black Forest. Black Forest, that sounds like Germany to me in my illiterate American way. Even I could tell that Black Forest sounds a lot like Germany. So what is interesting, in the Swabian dialect, Nestle is a small bird's nest. 
So yeah, it's very interesting because the Nestle family tree began with three brothers. And in this logo, which I will have over at the website, which is loaded with different data for you to take a look at, um, the logo uses three young birds in the nest being fed by their mother. And they also use this in their family coat of arms, this bird of these birds, which I found interesting because these people are all about their symbols. Remember, the birds were part about the MK7 deal. They codenamed that, what was it, Bluebird? And then, you know, we have Twitter's a bird. Um, they seem to like these bird things. But anyway, so... Um, so this, this this was passed down for over five generations um, between these Nestle people. So initially, yeah, the, the Nestle's provided a number of mares for different boroughs around Germany. So yeah, I always say they were connected. Um, Nestle, one Nestle arrived in Pennsylvania in 1803. Still circling around those dates, right? Okay, sales categories. This is in the last few years. 20 billion, I'm just rounding these off, 20 billion powdered and liquid beverages, 16 billion milk products and ice cream, 13 billion prepared dishes and cooking aids, 13 billion nutrition and health science, 11 billion pet care, 9 billion confectionery, 9 or closer to 7 billion in water sales. So the ge geographic breakdown of where these crooks <laughs> sell all this stuff is 43% um, from the Americas, 28% from Europe, and 29% from Asia, Oceania, and Africa. So yeah, they have over 2,000 brands, and in 2019, they entered the plant-based food production thing. I think one thing you will notice about these people, what they do tend to do is always rush to the more um, horrible solution, right? So instead of being good stewards of the land which we have here on earth and producing food which benefits everybody and is good to eat, they go toward the GMOs, the heavy fertilizers, the, uh, you know, farmers or the new indentured slaves, right? So at every corner and opportunity, they run to the worst possible scenario, all for what? To protect money. So anyway, so anyway, so let me go over a few of these little scandals they've had. Um, this is with Nestle. In late September 20, 2008, the Hong Kong government found melamine in a Chinese-made Nestle milk product. Six infants died from kidney damage, and a further 860 babies were hospitalized. So um, Nestle affirmed that all of its products were safe and were not made from milk adulterated, excuse me, adulterated with melamine. So they said, no, we didn't put that in there, right? Well, I wonder how it got in there. On October 2008, the Taiwan Health Ministry announced that six types of milk powder produced in China by Nestle contained low-level traces of melamine and were removed from the shelves. Well, they took some action, right? So, uh, yeah, and then they came up with a new plan in 2013, which is basically all BS that I don't waste your time with. They had a pretty big disaster in June of 2009 and an outbreak of E. coli and refrigerated cookie dough. And actually, some of these cookie dough things, and I don't mean this as advice, okay, what it actually is, from my, when I looked into this years ago, is 
the cookie dough isn't necessarily dangerous. What's dangerous is the unprocessed, the, the wheat. In other words, wheat that hasn't been cooked is dangerous. And just think about it for a minute here, right? The wheat is probably one of the most highly toxic things they raise in this country. No wonder we all have wheat allergies, right? Because it takes a tremendous amount of fertilizers. It takes a tremendous amount of pesticides and, you know, very fairly dangerous to eat, right? So yeah, so of course, if you don't cook wheat, it's probably worse than not eating raw eggs. So that's that's all I'm saying, this little deal here. So yeah, it's sometimes it's the wheat that's killing us, which is true because <laughs> uncooked wheat's dangerous. So anyway, so um, they got them in India in 2015 over some deal with noodles. Um, they were selling these Maggie noodles in New Delhi and um, they had incidents with them. Objectionable levels of metallic lead, among other things. So their stocks fell that day. What a shame, right? But they bounced right back up again. Um, so India's government later that year made public that it was seeking damages of nearly 100 million from Nestle India for unfair trade practices following the June ban of Maggie noodles. So the... Uh, there was an award by the country's top consumer court that was settled. The court ruled that the government ban on the Nestle product was both arbitrary and had viol violated the principles of natural justice. Although Nestle was not ordered to pay the fine sought in the government suit, the court ruled that the Maggie noodle producers must send five samples from each batch of Maggie noodles for testing to three labs and only if the lead is found to be lowered than permitted will they start manufacturing and sale again. Although tests have yet to be taken place, Nestle has already destroyed 400 million packets of Maggie products. Well, funny, 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 huh? Right? Only when pushed to the wall do they make any kind of possible changes. Okay, so I had another... Um, in the Philippines, localized versions of Maggie instant noodles were sold until 2011 when the product group was recalled for suspected salmonella contamination. The product did not return to the market. While Nestle continues to sell seasoned packets, including the popular Maggie Magic Sarap. So, I guess you can still buy it. So anyway, so here was a little timeline that I also had buried in this file that had more details as far as these Nestle people, right? According to his bio, he is called a German-born Swiss confectioner. How much more direct can you get than that, right? He was the founder of Nestle and one of the main creators of condensed milk. They created condensed milk, okay? Nestle's origin dates back to the 1860s when two separate Swiss enterprises were founded that would later form Nestle. In the following decades, the two competing enterprises expanded their business throughout Europe and the United States. So anyway, so um, they started 1866. They established the Anglo-Swiss Condensed Milk Company in Switzerland. And the company's first British operation was in Wilshire in 1873. Part of the reason I'm reading some of these things to you is because it gives us a connection to a lot of dates here, right? Because we can start to see a lot of activity that seems to crop up around the mid-1800s. <laughs> 
Funny how that happens, right? Did they just all of a sudden appear out of nowhere? Well, there's a high possibility of that, and I have some thoughts on that later. But yeah, for now, it's interesting that around this time frame that I continue to be drawn to, these people are lunging into gear, right? So, um, in 1866, oh, that was the people in Switzerland. Okay, so then Hervé Nestle, he developed, that's the one we want to look at. So in 1867, Hervé, who had been from Germany, is now in Vevey, Switzerland, okay? He developed milk-based baby food and soon began marketing it. So the following year, this other guy began seven years of work perfecting the milk chocolate manufacturing process. Nestle excuse me, had the solution Peter needed to fix his problem of removing all the water from the milk added to his chocolate thus preventing the pro I don't, prevented product from developing mildew. So these people were wizards of the chocolate business. <laughs> uh, 1875, Henri Nestle retired. The company under new ownership retained the name. Okay, 1876, 1877, excuse me. Anglo-Swiss added milk-based baby food to its products in the following year. The Nestle company added condensed milk to its portfolio which made the firm's direct rivals. 1879, Nestle emerged with two, with milk chocolate and had an event to this guy named Peter. So anyways, I'm going to drag you through this whole thing. 1901, 1989 was when they really sprung into gear, right? Funny how that's working out again, right? So they became a lot of things around that time. And they were merging and burging all over the place um, and what happened here which I found interesting so after World War One see they seem to have been profiting from the war if you kind of ask me right because they got into huge sales World War One kind of brought them into the forefront <laughs> if you if you put the dates together it seems to me Nestle uh, really spun into high gear over the first war right wonder how that happens right <laughs> Then, of course, probably the war contracts were what led them to the next phase. But anyway, so after the World War One, government contracts dried up and consumers switched back to fresh milk. Okay, <laughs> they can't be doing that, can they? Because Nestle's got business to do. However, Nestle's management responded quickly, streamlining operations and reducing debt. The 1920s saw Nestle's first expansion into new products. Funny around that era, right? 1920s. Those boats were docking from overseas. The insane asylums were being filled up with people and our relatives and stuff around that era. Pretty significant. Nestle's right in the thick of it, right? So this first expansion was milk, was chocolate manufacture becoming the company's second most important activity. So, um... I don't know, Nestle felt the efforts of the Second World War immediately. So evidently not too profitable during the Second World War. Profits dropped from U.S. $20 million in 1938 to U.S. $6 million in 1939. So then they had, of course, they used that time to go around and establish factories in developing countries, particularly in South America. And there's this whole deal, if I don't get into it, I'll tell you right now, 
Coca-Cola and Mexico and stuff, basically what they did there with water was they went in and convinced all the poor people that the way to go was to drink Coca-Cola and, and not be bothered with water. So that's how they were able to um, do the same thing that they were doing in um, other countries. They would use their local resources to bottle water to sell to people. And they introduced Coca-Cola to the system and telling people that Coke was, you know, as good as water. So that created the obesity and sugar levels and all that kind of stuff. So these people are really, uh, I want you to really absorb all this. These people are pretty evil, if you ask me. So um, in the 1980s, oh, excuse me, they bought a lot of stuff up here. Um, right after the war, they started, um, they started really merging with a lot of people. They 1947 okay remember the 70s remember i mean i have shows about 1971 right in the 1980s nestle's improved bottom line allowed the company to launch further acquisitions carnation was acquired for us 3 billion in 1984 and brought the evaporated milk brand as well as coffee mate and friskies to Nestle's in 1986. So yeah, they are out buying up everybody, right? Um, the first half of the 1990s pr proved to be favorable for Nestle. Trade barriers crumbled. Yeah, the 1990s were really it. 1990s uh, was when they started the mass consolidation. It was under the Telecommunications Act under, I think it was Clinton. And what that essentially did was take all of these people who provided information, you know, newspapers, print, all those people, it basically narrowed it down to only three or four players. That's how we're right now in this baby food deal because there's only three or four players, right? Because along with this, what they do is other tricks. Like, for example, they have been banning certain baby foods to be imported to this country from Europe. Well, the only reason I could find, and I didn't spend all year on it, but the only logical reason I could find was that the difference between U.S. baby food and many European baby foods is the sugar. I think I brought this up a few times here already. So, yeah, the sugar is a big difference. So, I don't know. If it were me, instead of spending hours, if you're in a mess right now <clears throat> and somebody needs baby food, instead of investing hours running around and trying to acquire some of this poison. I, th I think there was a time that people got by without feeding baby food from psychopaths, okay? So instead of spending hours trunking all around to find some available baby food at a high premium, possibly looking for recipes and other means of supporting those babies because this is really, I, I don't know. I'll put my opinion aside, but think for yourselves, folks. Think for yourselves. How did baby food ever get to be as loaded with sugar as a soda pop? Okay, how did this happen? Everybody asleep? Wakey, wakey, folks. Wakey, wakey. This is about eugenics. So, anyway, so yeah, quicker you get those babies off of this stuff, probably the better. But please don't take my advice. Do your own due diligence. So I have a hard time believing that only these people can make baby food. That's all I'm trying to say here, and I'll set that aside for now. So so anyway, so they're running around buying a bunch of stuff. Not that interesting. This is what they do. Um, but yeah, they bought, I was interested in Gerber, Gerber Baby Food. Talk about an iconic American brand. April of 2007, for $5.5 um, 
so yeah, so that's when they took over here with that. Um, I don't know. I don't think there's much more to say about them. Let me scan through for a second. Um, they don't seem to get in much trouble. I mean, as far as anything goes, um, they are pretty involved in this stuff. Um, the company announced, oh, stock buybacks. Here we go. This is why I was looking at this. Um, this is why the um, other company, you know, this Abbott Labs is having trouble right now because of sloppy behaviors and also the years of doing stock buybacks to enrich their corporate shareholders and executives, they didn't keep up with the equipment and stuff as part of the problem here, right? Well, that's the same issue that Intel got themselves into with the chip shortages. You spend several years up until this date now doing corporate stock buybacks, company doesn't spend money on equipment, and then boom, Gee, it almost makes you kind of wonder how planned this is, right? Huh. Seems kind of funny, doesn't it? In the last few years, they're enriching themselves with stock buybacks, and now all of a sudden, increased profits by, you know, hundreds of percent. It almost seems like this was scheduled. I don't know why I'd be thinking this way. So, yeah. So, um, anyway. So, yeah, they're trying to do these other ingredients they're introducing in Spain, which I would say uh, stay away from uh, because this is all about making things converted. Um, I don't know. I don't think I have anything more to say here. If I had anything more to say, I'll certainly say it later. Um, I just think that, um, putting innocent people in the path of any of these people seems to me like a very dangerous thing. And, um, let me read you something, what, what their view is of stuff, okay? This was about, I pulled up a quote from their website about Gerber baby food. Gerber baby, Ger, let me start over. Gerber baby food is creatively likened to the loving relationship between parents and children with a short and lighthearted commercial that markets its products as having safe, high quality and healthy meals for their children is a number one concern for parents. This Gerber baby food ad works to show how much care the brand takes in this. The spot is titled Gerber, Our Babies, and it compares the way parents treat their children to the way Gerber treats its food. This is achieved by showing images of babies and food side by side, while the brand likening fresh fruit and vegetables to the clothing... What? Okay, wait a second. This is achieved by showing images of babies and food side by side, with the brand likening fresh fruit and vegetables to the clothing. Oh, I see what they're saying. What they do is they graphically tie in, like I have an ad I'll post over at the website. It's a baby sitting next to some peaches and some complimentary clothes and stuff saying that, you know, we, we pick the freshest peaches in the world for your baby. That That's their whole marketing thing, right? That Gerber is so concerned for your babies that trust them because after all, they care as much or more than you do for their baby. The commercial stresses the importance of creating food that's handled with care and made in a way that keeps nutrition intact making for an ad that successfully appeals to its consumers, the marketing of eugenics. Don't nickel and dime our children. Don't say we want to get up a tax break to a, a business lunch and not give more money for children uh, to have food stamps and the rest. This means a great deal to children to be insecure about their housing. 
some of them will become homeless because the Republicans are nickel and diming our children. These families are crying out for the $600, they're nickel and diming uh, the uh, economic security of children's families. The list goes on and on. The president just dithers. This is the greatest crisis we've probably had in so many, so many years, and one of the five or six greatest crises America has ever had. And there is no leadership from the president. The bottom line is this. The Trump administration and Senate Republicans have badly mauled the body politic, the American economy, and American health care. And we believe the patient needs a major operation while Republicans want to apply just a Band-Aid. We won't let them just pass the Band-Aid, go home, and leave America bleeding. Let's talk about the different people that these people might possibly be. This is going to be, well, I've seen many of these kinds of theories in different places and there's different strains that go through these things that, that make a great deal of sense, okay? And I will be working my way toward um, the main theory is this, okay, there's a lot of people that understand and believe that there was some major trick in the United States a couple hundred years ago, okay, and, you know, there's a couple different theories. One theory is, is that the United States was being settled, and then this trick took place and reverted things, okay, or the other theory might be that it was just all one big trick, right? Because remember, we're following a trail, and what they do is they tell the truth, but they lay it out in a million different rabbit holes, okay? So, let's say that, um, so I agree that 200 years sounds like a reasonable place to start, right? Um, because that's where I've been kind of gravitating around in my research is the last couple hundred years. So, I agree that something happened 200 years ago, and it happened in a trick, and what it did was, um, I'm not going to jump far ahead because remember, I'm just now going through this. So this is kind of like hot off the press. Okay, so buckle up, kids. <laughs> so basically, what the theory is this, okay, there is this trick that took place in the UK in this place called the City of London. Okay. And what the trick was, was that it overtook the United States by law to be... A corporation okay not a democracy or anything like we think that it is okay so um, yeah and so there's different theories and so there's people that they say were in charge of this trick okay and um, basically the theory is this is that there when I talk about London during my ramblings of the next few episodes just remember I'm talking about the city of London which is a distinct little one mile area okay London this is how they seem to have this group set up that I'm going to be addressing today London controls the market meaning the money right Washington DC controls the military the Vatican controls religion and science okay so 
they say that these people came from a place in their Carscaria, okay, K-H-A-Z-A-R-I-A, okay, the homeland is Carzaria. <clears throat> Carzaria, and a lot of those places in that area are also named with that area ending to them, right, and what they say is this, some information I found, and I'm going to be presenting all kinds of different viewpoints here, okay, they say it's Carzaria was the real Jewish homeland. Carzaria is the Caucasus where there was a mass conversion to Judaism in the 8th century. These people with no connection to ancient Israel moved up into Eastern and Western Europe and then headed for the U.S. and Israel to become, to become today's Jewish population. Okay, so... Yeah, um, it makes sense to me because it has to do with all that ancient Israel stuff and all the stuff that we've been talking about going on over in that region. How it ties to Africa, well, not the point for today because today we're just going to be exploring what I know so far about all of this business with this Carscaria business. Because what they do is they make statements and they say things like, oh, this is all part of the City of London and the... Rothschild Carsperia Mafia, okay? They call it the Carsperia Mafia, okay? But nobody ever says, what's the Carsperia part? And, you know, I'm not even sure that Rothschild's a figurehead here, okay? So just for now, we're going to be agreeing with them that it's Rothschild Mafia, okay? These Carsperia and the Rothschilds, okay? It may make sense, may not make sense. We're just exploring things right now, okay? So, but all the things that I've read so far that they say about these people is highly, highly suspect to me, okay? They say that the Rothschilds act as a frontman for the Karkarsian, Car Car excuse me, Mafia. We'll call it the KM, okay? They infiltrate and hij they infiltrated and hijacked British banking and then hijacked the whole nation of England. He said that Bauer Rothschild had five sons who infiltrated and took over European banking and the City of London central banking system through very various covert operations, including a false report of Napoleon winning against the British when actually he lost. I don't know. This allowed the Rothschilds to use fraud and deception to steal the wealth of the English nobility and the landed gentry who had made business investments with the City of London banking institutions. Now, I don't know if any of that makes any of sense, but um, they also say that historically the re there were real Jews, Jesus and the Bible prophets, versus fake Kaskarian Mafia Jews. They called them Babylonian money magic, Talmudic Jews, or Slavics. Caucasian ethnicity, and this is interesting, this is a comment from the Prime Minister of Beijing, um, mentioned, I can't, I can't pronounce it, mentioned Beijing was the Prime Minister of Israel in, in about to the 80s or something, because he died like in the early 90s, and here's a quote that he had said, okay, he, and remember, he's over in Israel, so is he this new Jewish people? 
these Kargarian people who took over some other Jewish people? Not a clue, okay. But anyway, so this guy, Prime Minister Beijing of Israel, characterized his people as the master race, as divine gods on this planet, and all other races of the world. And, and, and he went on to say all other races of the world as inferior races and insects to presumably be eradicated so, yeah, that was this guy in Israel's view about everybody else. I keep hearing this thing about them being the chosen ones, right? And then obviously this stuff about them wanting to be kings, right? So, or gods, excuse me, gods. So, um, I don't know how much this means, but Beijing was, he was a pretty big leader in Israel during his day. Um, he signed the peace treaty with Egypt in 1979. So he was a pretty key player here. But here's what really stood out to me, okay? Because I'm going through this. People just really have a lot of words to say in this stuff. So. Um, historically speaking, now remember this Khazar region is something that they're all just kind of pontificating about, right? It's, But I don't think it's like the, um, you know, the deal with those um, Tartars, you know, all that the Tartary business. This is this, this does not seem anything like that. But the Khazar pus, Khazar part did enter into that Tartaria, so I can't remember how. But anyway, just get that out of your mind for now. I don't think it's the same kind of totally fake deal as what I'm saying. Because they said, historically speaking, the Khazar kingdom was established before Russia itself. It was centered in what is now called the Ukraine but included also neighboring companies like Kazakhstan. The Russians eventually conquered the Khazars and incorporated their land into Russia. In 1917, the Khazars in turn overthrew Russia and established the Soviet Union. This was not a rev Russian revolution, but a Jewish revolution in Russia. That is why the Lower East Side of New York City, the Jewish section, sent the first 256 commissars to rule Russia, including Rabbi Leon Bronstein, who took the name Leon Trotsky. So, yeah, I, I don't know if any of that's true, okay? I don't, have, I don't have a clue. But it does make sense, right? So, in 1970, the Khazars overthrew Russia. Well, I don't know. Um... After a 70-year seven year captivity, the Soviet Union began to collapse and break apart. The Socialist Republics became relatively independent, including the Ukraine. This brings us to the present conflict, where Russia is again overthrowing the Khazar stronghold. Who knows, right? Also, uh, <laughs> this is going to be such a patchwork of things, but it, it does, it you know, I've gone through it. For quite a while now, and there is a, a great deal of sense, okay, that starts to come through in this stuff. They say, remember, but remember, Albert, Al, Adolf Hitler was also an actor, right? But people have done his, his genealogy or however it's been presented, okay? Supposedly, Adolf Hitler was Karzer, Karz, a Karzian, Jew with a direct descendant grandson on his mother's side oh he, they said that he was a grandson on his mother's side of nathan rothschild who was secretly supported by the rothschilds 
literally from birth and raised from obscure. Yeah, I don't know. Was Hitler part of the Rothschild family? Who knows? Some of these, some of these theories just get insane. But, um, but some of them may be true. I don't know. So the idea when you start looking at something is to include it all and not start throwing things out too quickly because now we're at the I don't really know stage. Okay. Um, somebody said the Khazars probably belong to the tribal confederation of the Gut Turks, which exercised its influence through Central Asia. In the seventh century, however, the empire broke up, and I don't know. Oh, and their earlier allies, the Bulgarians, remained in the end. At that time, the Bulgarians were still a Turk people. Now, are Turkic people from Turkey? They're from Turkey, and that would make them part of the Ottoman Empire, right? And also spread by what is now known as Bulgaria. Okay, and remember, most of this stuff is coming from their historians, so we don't want to get too weighed down at very much of it at this point in time, right? So, so then they went on to say, after the newly founded state of the Khazars defeated the advancing Islamic empire of the Umadis in the war, there is no way around it from the 8th century. The Khazars sat on a strategically important pivot point collecting powerful customs duties on all flows of goods and had just proved their might, military might. Now this is starting to kind of smell like them, right? Collecting money, taxes, military might. Okay, then they, had, they say they had an opportunity to expand a little further and establish themselves on the Northern Black Sea, the Crimea, as far as the Aral Sea. The Khazar Tribal Confederation thus became a great empire within a century. Well, okay, that sounded pretty good, right? Nevertheless, the whole thing was not to last long, shucks. Even if the first enemies of the South, the Umayyans, could be fended off, the even more powerful Islamic Empire, okay, Islamic Empire of the Abadis, A-B-B-A-S-I-D-I-S, soon arose there and began to cause new problems. BSTM, was also critical of the influence of the Khazars. Oh, and then West, the Vikings arrived. Yeah, I don't know if any of this stuff is even close to them. Meanwhile, the Khazar Empire was losing more and more influence. So part of their descendants were deserted. Oh, wait a minute. What I see here about the Hungarians. Um, Meanwhile, the Khazar Empire was losing more and more influence. Parts of its tributary subjects deserted. For example, the Hungarians. So I guess the Hungarians took off from the Khazars at that point. Okay, so there we connect the Khazars. They say around the end of the 10th century. We're kind of warming up here, right? So this is quite a story here. The citizens of the neighboring countries, especially Russia, had complained to their leaders for so many years that they, as a group, sent an ultimatum to the Khazarian king. They sent an official proclamation to the Khazarian king, according to which he had to choose one of the three Arabic religions for his people and declare it the official state religion which all Khazars and Khazarian children had to internalize and practice. The Khazars had a choice between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. 
the Khazar king Bulan, B-U-L-A-N, chose Judaism and promised to fulfill the conditions of the surrounding nations confederated. Let me see here so I don't flip down too far. Confederated under the leadership of the Russian Tsar. Okay, very interesting, right? Despite this pledge and promise, the Khazarian king and the inner circle of oligarchs have continued the use of Babylonian, Babylonian, excuse me, like Babylon black magic, also known as secret Satanism. Boy, they really started to go on a limb here on this deal, don't they? Okay, the secret Satanism has included secret ceremonies that have also been characterized by the sacrifice of children drinking their blood and eating their hearts after they have been blood dried. They always kind of go back to the Satanism story with the blood drinking part, and I'm not really sure that I'm on board with this, but go see my show about Bohemian Grove. Some of this stuff, you know, just gets repeated, you know, ad nauseum by their little agents and spin agents. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't connect that to the truth right this second, okay? Uh, then they went on to say, the deep secret of these occult ceremonies was that they were all based on the ancient Baal worship also known as the worship of the owl. That's starting to sound more like those Bohemian Grove folks to me. But anyway, so in order to deceive the Russian-led Confederation of Nations that observed Kakarzia, the Kakarzian king merged those Luciferian black magic practices with Judaism and created a secret hybrid religion known as the Babylonian Talmud. This became the state religion of Kaskaria and cultivated the same evil that Kaskaria had been known for before. Well, I don't know. That sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? Um, the nations that observe Kaskaria, the Kaskarian king, merged these Luciferian black magic practices with Judaism. So... It sounds to me like they moved these uh, black magic things into some, you know, existing Judaism, right? So they're saying Judaism existed and these people merged it with it. The Khazar Empire was crushed. This is where these dates start to come all over the board, right? This place says the Khazar Empire was crushed in 1016 and the converted Khazars ended up as Jews in Eastern Europe. Well... Who knows, right? One other theory. Okay, this one, you know, I, I pulled out the ones that didn't sound like they were insane, okay? <laughs> so, okay. As masters of disguise for nearly 2,000 years, the Kasgarians and their co contemporary allies in the modern intelligence agencies and secret po police that the Kaskarian Mafia, that's why they keep calling them Kaskarian Mafia. I'll start calling them KM so I don't have to keep bumbling over their word, okay? Okay, so their agencies and secret police that the KM created and or infiltrated the SS, Gestapo, CIA, FBA, FBI, excuse me, NSA, Mossad, have taken over virtually all media. See, this is where these people are a little bit nuts, okay? Because, and I mean, not nuts, but just maybe kind of misinformed. So they say they took over all media. Well, they didn't really take it over. They are all media, right? There's a difference between taking something over and being your own creation. Would you agree? 
I I believe all these things are their creation, not that they came in and <laughs> took them over from somebody. So, um, but then they go on to this other explanation. Um, so, um, they said, you must understand that the KMs are worshipers of Satan through the guise of fake Judaism, Babylonian or Talmudism, secret Satanism. Therefore, these fake Khazgarian Jews following the cabal cult of the law of opposites well this makes sense right cabal cult of the law of opposites everything is everything is the opposite we're looking at right dual world actually hates god hates jesus christ hates the holy ghost hates the bible which is the word of god and everything associated with it Therefore, using cabal Jewish cult tactics or law, yeah, that whole uh, cabal thing with all the celebrities, that's all part of this whole deal here. Um, the Khazarian or the Khazarian Mafia, not, I'll try to say it now, KM, <laughs> has over for over 2,000 years perfected the tactics and strategies of infiltration over invasion, disguising lies as truth delusions as reality perverse perversity as conventional thinking while incrementally transfiguring metamorphosing society to conform to its satanic will well i must agree that all of those things make a great deal of sense to be that that sounds like what's going on now right and then they go on to say where they kind of start to go off track here a little bit okay this is the evil intent of the Rothschild, Rockefeller, Soros, Monarchy, Secret Societies, 1301 Bloodlines, New World Order, which tens thousands of years, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, to sup, this part is true. To disguise their original evil intent to supplant God and genocide his creation for the glory of Satan. Well, that sounds very realistic to me because they are, in fact, trying to create people because that would be in direct competition with god creator whatever you want to call it right somebody created us right it wasn't these people thankfully um but anyway so yeah somebody created us the whole idea here is they're trying to supplant and be their own gods right well i mean they're already failing out of the shoot with all these hormones i'm not going to go there right now but yeah so the whole idea they think they're going to eradicate god god's creations us and be creating people on their own well okay let me just stick here and also these 13 bloodline families they say they came from these 13 bloodline families and who claim to be the earthly chosen ones of satan and believe they have been specially anointed with satanic power needed to take over the whole world step by step and rule it yes i agree with that I'm not sure they're all directly bloodline families, but yes, there is a cabal of people that are doing all these things, right? Do we know their faces? We don't know. Do they look like Rothschild? Who knows, right? That that becomes a, um, in, the, in the rabbit trails they lead out and all this stuff, that becomes one that becomes like not that important right now. Okay, so Rothschild, we don't know. Would you show your face if you were, if you were Satan's best friend? <laughs> so I don't know, so... Um, they believe this transformation into gods will take place when they're able to seat their own globus. NW, NWO ruler is satanic world king and messiah. Um, I don't know. I don't think these people know that. But yeah, I believe with, with the rest of it's probably true, right? 
because they go on to say the COL, which is the city of London, RK, <clears throat> have always infiltrated societies by seeking out the organized crime underworld and threatening it with eradication while offering a partnership for growth as an alternative, which the criminal underworld always accepts. I completely disagree with that statement because I believe <laughs> they create the underworld as they're part of their dual thing, right? They're the justice, there's the underworld, right? Dual. That's them. Not They didn't come in and conquer them. The mafia is these people. They didn't come in and conquer them. Uh, so so um, then here's this other really wild tangent. Let me go on here for a second. <clears throat> let me see how my time's doing here. Okay, let me see here. I'm going to go ahead and continue on for a little bit longer here um, and see where we go with this. Um, so this is a whole new one. Here again, it, it makes more sense than it does craziness, right? Okay. How Satan had used fake Jews, the Khazars, to fund slavery, colonialism as a prelude to globalism and the sat satanic new world order. Why would the KM fake corporate media put so much money and such tremendous amounts of resources into confusing the people with fake news? The devil is always in the details. I don't think they meant that as a joke or not. For example, in ancient times, they often used intrinsic measures to enslave people. Things like chains, shackles, whips, torture, family deconstruction, execution, threat of, threat of execution, Today's slave masters of the world, the chief of which are the Karkarian Mafia, the KMs, uses more psychological, intrinsical, and effective means to enslave people. For example, social media, fake pandemics, media monopolies, debt slavery, balkanization of nations, race wars, fake science, evolution, eugenics, climate change. Proven tactics and strategies to enslave not only black people, but the entire world. If you have doubts that humanity has been enslaved by the inside the KM Mafia Matrix, then you need to wonder what, if, whether you've been a slave for the past 150 years. The KM Mafia invades England after being expelled for hundreds of years. Okay, so I don't know. It seems to me they say these KM, these mafia people, um, went into England. So they say that England could later be set up by the Khazari Mafia frontman, the House of Rothschild, which during that time secretly set up meetings, oh, secretly set up the sovereign nation city of London. A country within a country just like the Vatican in Washington, D.C. So, city of London, Washington, D.C., and the Vatican are all set up like countries, okay? This was set up to be the financial banking capital of England. Great deal of sense here, right? Don't know how far back we'll go, but let's go back with this guy. He's saying the genealogy of the Rothschilds can be derived back to 1577. Well, okay. Beginning the 1700s, under Armshell Mayor Rothschild, the Khazar Mafia set up the House of Rothschild. So this would have happened, this 
um, Ashmer Rothschild was alive from 1744 to 1812, okay? And during that time, the Khazarian Mafia set up the House of Rothschild to eventually set up central banks in all of the capitals of and the financial centers of Eastern and Western Europe, North America, and eventually the entire world. Yes, this makes a tremendous amount of sense to me, okay? So, okay, so now we've gotten to the um, Rothschilds, okay? Um, and let me see if we should take a break into the next section here. Yeah, let me finish with this, and then the next one I will talk about what is the city of London, okay? So we're getting our way there, okay? So, um, oh, they said that the city of London and the Rothschild KM's recolonization effort has been a long-term effort to manipulate Americans into serfs, deploy them in their illegal, aggressive wars of acquisition to steal natural resources of other nations to gain more power and for extreme profits for themselves and their associated corporations. Well, <laughs> I don't see anything I can really offer as an argument here. So let me come back here with the City of London and how that pulls together. Because remember, the our friends, the um, Carzarian Mafia, introduces us to the Rothschilds, right? So where we're going to pick up is their creation that they got together and created which was, in fact, the City of London. So we'll be right back with that one. Since the 1970s, there have been at least 18 gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and they continue to brutalize and even murder community members today. My name is Cerise Castle, and I am a journalist. In the summer of 2020, I was working for a local radio station here in Los Angeles, and I was out covering the George Floyd rallies that were happening across the country, across the world. And I was shooting photos of people protesting, and while I was doing that, two cars with police officers on them in riot gear rolled into the area where people had gathered and they shot people with less lethal munitions. And although I identified myself as press, I was shot and the resulting injuries landed me in the hospital. A few days after that happened, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department um, killed a teenager who was working at his job in the Compton area. Very quickly after this young man was killed, his name is Andres Guardado, was reported that his killing may have been part of a gang initiation. And there are some new allegations against the deputy involved in Guardado's case who did not fire his weapon. Civil rights attorneys accused Christopher Hernandez of being part of what some call a sheriff's department clique or gang. While I was bedridden, I started researching the history of the gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and I found out that this dates back at least 50 years. I spent 
six months researching deputy gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Uh, conservatively, I estimate I read about 100,000 pages of legal filings. And what I came away with was a 15-part series detailing 18 gangs that I was able to confirm the existence of within the department. There are the Little Devils, Posse, the Wayside Whiteys, the 2000 Boys, the 3000 Boys, the Jump Out Boys, the Banditos, the Executioners, the Spartans, the Cowboys, the Rattlesnakes, and the Tasmanian Devils. They have killed 19 people, all of whom were men of color, several of whom were in a mental health crisis when they were killed. Uh, government from the county level, the state level, and the federal level has known about this issue since the early 1990s and no significant action policy change has been brought forth. So let's do a quick run through of the gangs of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. All of them have stuff in common. You usually have official gang tattoos, a hand signal, and a way to join, usually by shooting or killing a civilian or doing something like falsifying paperwork. These are just a few of the gangs operating within the LA Sheriff's Department. The Wayside Whiteys. The Wayside Whiteys was a gang of white deputies at the Pitches Detention Center in Northern LA County in the 1980s and 1990s. Their sign was having their middle fingers crossed to create a W for white. The Linwood Vikings. The Vikings were a gang based out of the Linwood Station. Their tattoo was of a Viking, and their hand sign was an L made with the thumb and index finger for Linwood and they were one of the most powerful and most violent gangs. A lot of their members became leaders in the department. The 3000 Boys. The 3000 Boys were based out of the Men's Central Jail in downtown LA. The 3000 Boys are particularly violent because that's where the department would transfer deputies convicted of crimes to keep them away from the public. The Jump Out Boys. The Jump Out Boys operated across the county in the Operation Safe Streets unit their tattoo was of a skeleton with glowing red eyes holding a revolver and the dead man's hand, a popular poker holding among law enforcement officers. They kept their manifesto in a notebook. The Regulators. Out of the Century Station, you have the Regulators, who allegedly have many members working in department leadership. The Executioners. At the Compton Station, you have the Executioners. Their tattoo is of a skeleton with a Nazi helmet holding an assault rifle. Black people and women are not allowed to join the gang. The Banditos. The Banditos operate mainly out of the East LA station, and their tattoo is of a skeleton wearing a sombrero with a smoking revolver and a sheriff's badge. They have a culture of working backwards, arresting or shooting civilians, and coming up with probable cause later by planting and manufacturing evidence. There are others, like the Rattlesnakes, the Pirates, and the Buffalo Soldiers that we know a lot less about. Anyway, I'm here today at a rally, two-year anniversary of the killing of Paul Rea, 18-year-old young man at a traffic stop by Hector Saavedra, who's East LA Sheriff Deputy, who was a prospect 
for the deputy sheriff gang, Los Banditos. Now, how do I know that? Because two deputies who work here were uh, interviewed on national TV. LA Sheriff Deputy Hector Saavedra Soto. Is he a prospect for the Banditos? Yes, he is. He's a prospect. Paul Gray is my son. He was murdered on June 27th, 2019. Um, it was a, supposed to be a traffic stop. Um, they pulled him out of their cars with guns. Um, when they were questioning why they're getting pulled over, they were scared because they didn't know why they were getting pulled over. And they're getting pulled over with guns, you know, to their heads and being told that if they move, they're gonna shoot their fucking heads off. Um, they pulled the driver out of the car. And um, when they pulled my son out, they were gonna handcuff my son. And, and I know my son was feared for his life. He just from childhood, you know, growing up, seen me harassed before. Um, he ran, he didn't even get four feet away when Hector Saavedra shot him multiple times in the back. Paul's father was actually killed by Chiris deputies, so he grew up his whole life being afraid of this deputy gang. So when they asked him to get out of the car, naturally he was afraid. So he attempted to exit that interaction, which is perfectly within his right since he was not the driver. Um, unfortunately, Saavedra um, pursued Paul and shot him in the back multiple times um, right here, and Paul died. The, the two deputies that killed Anthony Vargas were also prospects for the East L.A. Sheriff's Gang. Anthony Vargas was shot by Sheriff Deputy Nicholas Perez and Sheriff Deputy Jonathan Rojas. Are they also part of the Bandidos Gang or prospects for the Bandidos? Prospects? Yes. They're prospects. How do you know they were prospects? You know, just personal conversations with them and them saying that was one of their main goals, to be a part of this gang. August 12th of uh, 2018, my nephew, um, he had attended a barbecue, you know, he was just following what he always did, you know, whenever there was a barbecue, he showed up, took his rub, he thought it was the best rub, so hey, get it out there, right? He took it and, um, you know, that was the last time, that was the last day that we, we seen him was August 11th. There was a robbery call that had went into the East LA Sheriff's Department. Um, where an individual had said that they had their $12 watch stolen. They gave a description of an individual, 30 to 40 years old, over six feet tall. Um, you know, it fit nothing of Anthony's description, wearing a completely different color shirt than my nephew had on. Um, you know, two deputies from the East LA Sheriff's Department were, you know, servicing the area at the time and they saw my nephew walking down one of the fire paths on his way home and they, you know, targeted him. My nephew was punched in his head multiple times, punched in his ribs by these deputies, um, you know, before falling to his knees where he was shot at 16 times. It was just like bam, 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 like continuous shots. One man shot and killed by Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies. Investigators say the young man did have a gun on him, but they're not sure if he was a part of the robbery. Anthony was not known to carry a gun on him. Um, he slept in a room with my mom, which is his grandma. He slept directly across from my seven-year-old niece at the, she was seven years old at the time. Anthony was not known to carry a gun. 
You know, he was not known to carry weapons. He was You've never seen him with a gun? No, never. If you get in a shooting, that's a definite brownie point. And according to these deputies, to justify those shootings, they plant weapons on the people they stop. There's been multiple occasions where they say, hey, we got a guy that has a gun and he's running from us. In reality, that person never had a gun. And they would say, oh, it was a phantom gun. It was something that really wasn't there. So you have personally witnessed that? Yes. And we started reading the DA report and matching them with, you know, other things that we found on our own, which includes like, you know, the, like the autopsy report, you know, we found out through forensics that the gun that they're saying my nephew had on him had absolutely no DNA on it. None of my nephew's DNA. And I find it strange because these, these deputies are saying that my nephew had the gun in his hand and he was like an imminent threat to them. But if he was holding a gun in his hand, there would have been fingerprints on the gun. Immediately after I released the first part of the series, I began receiving death threats. Um, I regularly receive threatening messages on my social media. I receive phone calls from people threatening my life. I have, my loved ones have received these messages as well. Uh, the sheriff of Los Angeles County has instructed anyone that I reported on to personally sue me. And when I attempted to attend a press conference featuring the sheriff's department, I was detained. Why? <laughs> I think the sheriff's department has decided to target me since I released the series. We started like just finding shit and everything we would find out about Anthony or about the sheriff's department, we would come out and talk. And the more we would come out and talk, the cops would pass by the house and they would park on the corner of our street, which they still do to this time. They would park in the corner of our house and they would sit in our car and they would eat their lunch. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a corner store from where our family residence is so the kids will walk to the store and they can't even walk to the store because they see the sheriff's department right there and because they know what they did to Anthony and these are kids under the age of like 15. Deputy Art Gonzalez is a documented hero, a former Marine who became a deputy, rewarded by the L.A. County Sheriff's Department with the Medal of Valor in 2018 for saving the life of a four-year-old boy. The time is 10.59 and we are on the record. Okay. Now he's sounding the alarm of a group of 15 officers inside the Compton station with matching tattoos, allegedly known as the executioners. I now call them a gang because that's what gangs do. They beat up other people. Deputy Gonzalez, um, he's, he's afraid for, for his safety right now. He also reports that graffiti appeared at the station entrance. Art is a rat and that was placed at the keypad to get into the parking lot. So that's the most visible place in the entire station. His lawyer says he's now on leave from the department and in fear for his life.
In addition to having to hire security guards to go with me when I do my job, um, I've had to start wearing a bulletproof vest. Um, many of these death threats are credible, and I've been told by people inside the department that I should be careful. So, I invested in this. This is a bulletproof vest. I, yeah, this guy comes with me very often. Why do you keep doing it? I continue to report on this story because no one else really is. And seeing the closure, I suppose, that I'm able to bring to families, um, you know, oftentimes they had suspected for years that their loved one had been killed by a deputy gang member. And I can come along and confirm that. And I've also seen my reporting make a very real difference in some of the ongoing cases. Um, just recently, the Democratic Party of Los Angeles County uh, passed a resolution asking for the sheriff to resign. And now that, you know, everything's came out, like there's a complete, you know, turn. And like, I can't tell you how it feels to like see the tide turn. You know, like it's fucking groundbreaking and it's like it shows you the progress that's being made. You know, it just makes you want to keep pushing more and more because when we were fighting back then, like that push now has come, it's come even further and it's just like it fucking, it encourages you. The Sheriff Alex Villanueva, the, the lead gang member of LA County, he's a bandito himself. This is 10, 3,000 boys. Deputy Mark Romero is one of them, and now today I believe he's a homicide sheriff, but he's a 3,000 boy underneath. Uh, we're out here spreading the word, everyone's saying it. Google LASD gangs. Everyone should be uh, tagging their neighborhood with Google LASD gangs. Google LASD gangs. Fuck the banditos. Fuck Sheriff Villanueva. Fuck LASD as an organization. By the way, when you're done Googling 40% cops, uh, Google Los Angeles Sheriff Department gangs. Okay, LASD gangs. We know about your gangs. We're telling our people to Google LASD gangs, and we're coming for your asses. And then there's, uh, there's another woman, Cerise, uh, who has been uh, putting together a series about the gangs in the uh, sheriff's department. So I'm gonna take a look at all of this as these investigations are going on. We have video proof, we have pictures. We've taken them to the sheriff's department. We've called the CLC meetings. We've done what we had to do and nothing's gotten done. It's unacceptable. We will send a clear message to the LA County Sheriff's Department that you clean your house. You get your house in order or we will surely help you do that. You have executioners, you have gangs in your own house. Keep going out there and just keep fighting and keep exposing them for what they are and what they're doing because it's, you know, their reign of terror isn't going to stop unless we put a stop to it. So that's, we're not going away anytime soon, you know, like we, we're here to stay. interject a few safety issues here that I'd like to address real quickly. 
There's several things that I've learned through this process that I'd like to share with you as far as getting prepared. And no, we're not going to go through everything at all, all of it, but I'd like to share some things that are logical and things that you might consider yourself. I believe there's going to become a time when it will not be safe to let your dog outside. And if it is safe, let's say you have a fenced-in yard. I suggest strongly you get a 30 or a 50 foot leash. You can get one on Amazon for around the $10 range before you say, well, what do I need a leash for if I have a yard and a fence? Well, because for example, if my dog were to hear noise outside, let's say commotion, I don't know, activity, his instinct would be to run to the edge of the fence and stand there and bark at whatever's out there, right? Well, I may not want him to stand there and bark at whatever's out there. So if I have this 50-foot leash, when he goes out to do his business in the yard, I simply put the leash on. It gives him enough you know, leeway to roam around a little bit. But if I feel a need to bring him back immediately, I can just pull the leash because he will likely not hear me or want to respond. So a 50, 30 or 50 foot leash is highly recommended, okay? Also, you're gonna to wanna to have pet pads and Costco is the best place to buy pet pads. How are you gonna take your dog outside to go to the bathroom if it doesn't feel safe? Pets will be coming under anxiety. So you wanna set up pet pads and be thinking about an area of your house you're going to use for this. What you do is set up an area at the furthest, you know, furthest area that you can, and then learn to coax them, you know, put them, on, put them on a leash like you're going for a walk, take them over there. So get them used to using pet pads. Also, how are you going to communicate with others? I don't think cell phones are going to be that safe down the road. Now, I don't think they're like on top of all of this stuff and you have to worry about everything, but I do believe, and I believe this very strongly, they understand the part about tracking and cell phones, okay? So let's say there's a communication disruption and that cell phone doesn't work. Well, what about this? What about for people in your immediate area, like let's say you have a close relative that's elderly that lives a mile or two from you. How are you gonna communicate with that person? Well, how about something simple like some walkie-talkies? Walkie-talkies, you can get a set of those for under $100. I think Costco also has walkie-talkies. I think the range is probably pretty decent before you start thinking, well, but can't the cops tune into the walkie-talkies? Yeah, of course they could. But do you think if things are going that bad that you don't have phone communication, that they're going to be focused on you and your house and your older relative? I don't think so. So I would get some walkie-talkies. Invest on how you're going to communicate. Are you going to be able to get a hold of this person? Well, it seems like a pretty simple method to me. You might also want to stock up on both canned and dry goods because you may need to eat out of those cans. Also, stock parboiled or instant rice. The, the stuff that comes labeled parboiled is usually cheaper than that minute rice stuff. Things that you can cook in under a minute or two because if you have the parboiled rice and you have some canned meats and stuff, you're able to fix your pets their food that way or your children's food that way. So get the parboiled rice at this point. You will also really need a way to get rid of the foul taste of water you may be having to drink in the future. 
stock up on drink powder packets. You're thinking, oh, I never drink those powder packets. Well, you might start. What I have done is I found my own method that I like. What I mix is a packet of unsweetened Kool-Aid and then a packet of this Weiler's mix with, you know, it's that pre-sweetened stuff. I just do a dash of that and the unsweetened Kool-Aid gives me my flavor for my water. So you don't, you're going to be needing to treat your water at some point with unscented chlorine bleach. So you definitely will want some packets of things to disguise the taste. And of course, don't forget about fire extinguishers. And somewhere after this show, or before it, I don't remember which, I'm playing the clip about the gangs from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. I don't believe it is isolated to the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. I think they're telling us something here. And all you have to do is, if you're interested, Google these words. L-A-S-D and gangs. That means the Los Angeles Sheriff Department gangs. And you will find all the information that your little eyes can feast on about these gangs. And interestingly enough, the man or woman in charge of the L.A. sheriffs is named Villanueva, okay? Alex Villanueva. I think they get elected. Anyways, interesting character, right? Allegedly, he came out of these sheriff's gangs, which if you believe there's gangs, that would make sense, right? The guy in charge of the sheriffs is the head gang member, right? So that's how they roll in this country, so... Do not kid yourself, and always remember, evil has to come packaged as hell. Okay, in this segment, I will be talking about a couple of things. One is the City of London, and the other will be, I'll be talking a little bit about Washington, D.C. Now, I will also be posting links to some more informative um, videos over at the website, psychopathinyourlife.com. Look under show notes, and you'll find all you want to find. Because I am just myself understanding all this. I have seen things about this over the years, but they were actually presented in such a confusing manner that now the pieces are kind of starting to come together for me. So I don't want to put it out there in a confusing manner for you also. So it's interesting that we have Washington, D.C. as a city within a city, right? So let's go over a couple of details about that. Um... Washington, D.C., officially called District of Columbia, is the capital of the United States. Now, some say it's not the capital, so I'm a little confused about that, but it was founded on July the 16th, 1790, and today has a city population of, I don't know, 599,000 as of 29, and an area of 68 square miles. I'm sure those miles were numbered for some reason, 68 square miles. Um, it should be noted, however, that during the week, Washington, D.C.'s population rises to well over 1 million due to suburban commuters. So Washington, D.C. is home to all three branches of the U.S. government, as well as many international organizations and the embassies of 174 foreign nations. 
In addition to being the center of the U.S. government, Washington, D.C. is known for its history. The city limits include many historic national monuments and famous museums like the Smithsonian Institute. And um, let me see. When Europeans first arrived, allegedly, in what is present-day Washington, D.C., in the 17th century, the area was inhabited by the Nachotak tribe, N-A-C-O-T-C-H-T-A-N-K tribe. By the 18th century, Europeans had forcibly relocated the tribe and the region was becoming more developed. In 1749, Alexandria, Virginia was founded and in 1751, the province of Maryland chartered Georgetown along the Potomac River. Eventually, both were included in the original Washington, D.C. district. Okay, so in 1788, allegedly, James Madison stated that the new U.S. nation would need a capital that was dis distinct from the states. Shortly thereafter, Article One of the U.S. Constitution stated that a district separate from the states would become the seat of government. On July 16, 1790, the Residence Act established that this capital district would be located along the Potomac River and President George Washington would decide exactly where. So initially, Washington, D.C. was a square and measured 10 miles, or 16 kilometers. On each side, first, a federal city was constructed near Georgetown, and on September the 9th, 1791, the city was named Washington, and the newly established federal district was named Columbia. In 1801, the Organic Act officially organized the District of Columbia and was expanded to include Washington, Georgetown, and Alexandria. In August of 1814, Washington, D.C. was attacked by British forces during the War of 1812, and the Capitol, Treasury, and White House were all burned down. Okay? Kind of puts a reason why they might have had to build them, right? Were they there in the first place? Did they really get burned? Who knows, right? They were quickly repaired. So this might give us a date of around early 1800 that they were actually even constructed, right? In 1846, Washington, D.C. lost some of its areas when Congress returned all district territory south of the Potomac back to the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Organic Act of 1871 then combined the city of Washington, Georgetown, and Washington County into a single entity known as the District of Columbia. This region is what became today's Washington, D.C. Okay. Washington, D.C. is considered a separate area. Okay, That's what makes it interesting. Today, Washington, D.C. is still considered separate from its neighboring states, Virginia and Maryland, and is governed by a mayor and a city council. 
The U.S. Congress, however, has the highest authority over the area and can overturn local laws if necessary. In addition, residents of Washington, D.C. were not allowed to vote in presidential elections until 1961. Washington, D.C. also has a non-voting congressional delegate, but it does not have any senators. So no senators for representing Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, we got all that going, going that we got figured out. Okay, so Washington, D.C. is considered a cultural center in the U.S. because of its many national historic landmarks, museums, and historic places, such as the Capitol and the White House. Washington, D.C. is home to the National Mall, which is, the which is a large park within the city. The park contains museums like the Smithsonian and the National Museum of Natural History. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting what they have going on in Washington, D.C. So, let's take a look briefly here at the City of London, which is also a city within a city. The City of London Corporation is a one-mile square block in London where the 110 livery companies operate from. So they say there's 110 livery, L-I-V-E-R-Y, companies. Okay, now I am going to also put a link to some information about what this all means over at the website because I am just guessing right now, okay, because a lot of this... Well, it's not all new to me, but looking into it deeper is new to me, okay? So, this livery business, I think that means all the major corporations in the world hang out in the city of London, just to cut to the chase here. But, just getting into all this new data, so, this is my guess right now, that these 110 livery companies would mean they're companies from all around the world. The 110 livery companies represent every industry in the global market. Most major corporations today are connected with the livery companies through proxies or subsidiaries. Business at the City of London is mostly private and they conceal ownership through private contracts. There are 110 livery companies. A livery is a, um, let me give you a thing here. A livery is basically something they came up with a long time ago. And let me look here real quick and tell you what it says. It says, um, the livery, because I was very confused about that. And I'm still a little bit fuzzy about it. Okay. What is a livery company? Um, the term livery originated in the specific form of dress worn by retainers of a nobleman and then by extension to specific dress to denote status of belonging to a trade. Livery companies evolved from London's medieval guilds, becoming corporations under royal charter responsible for training in their respective trades. Anyway, I would suggest you go look at that clip over at the website and learn more about livery companies. I think that's just the word that they use and they're really, instead of saying major corporations, they call them liveries. And they also dress, dress in all this kind of livery business and they march around and they wear crowns and <laughs> it's typical stuff that they do. So yeah, I'll leave you to go look for yourself more about this livery company business, okay? Because it is very, very interesting. Um, so anyway, so... 
this ties into um, the livery. Uh, the livery companies play a significant part in the city of London, the financial district, and historic heart of the capital. So they also say it's, they do a lot of charitable things there, right? Okay. These people are interesting, right? They go around and create eugenics and then advertise that they care about people, right? So anyway, so this brings in into the city of London something that has been floating around in my research for, oh, I don't know, a couple of years now, okay? Supposedly, okay, there's this group called the Knights Templar of London, okay? T-E-M-P-L-A-R. They also connect to Malta, M-A-L-T-A. You will see them wearing the Malta Cross. I'll put some pictures of the Malta Cross over at the website. Also, the Maltese Falcon, that movie came from Malta. So Malta, I wandered around Malta for the longest time. It's also a tax haven. Um, Malta, people of high caliber get the Malta Award from the Queen. Because when I first saw that, um, what's his face? Uh, oh, I don't know. Nelson Mandela. I saw him in a Malta cape. <laughs> and I thought, they wear these long black capes with a big white Malta logo on them. And you'll when you see it over on the website, you'll recognize it, okay? So what happens is the queen gives out this award for these Malta people and they get the Malta cross. Well, that was a few years ago when I first started recognizing the controlled opposition part of this whole game, right? Because I started thinking, well, why exactly is Nelson Mandela getting the Malta cross? So anyway, so yeah. But this Malta cross relates to the Knights Templar. Well, I was looking a few years ago into the Knights Templar because they have this thing called hospitators. And at the time, I was wondering, and I'm still wondering, did the word hospital come from these people? You know, hospital where they're doing all the eugenics right now? Um, so yeah. So let me try to explain a little bit here about this Knights of Templar business, okay? And they intersect into this other stuff here. So I will talk about the Knights of Templar, and the Knights of Templar of London were headquartered at the Inner Temple of the City of London, and today they're called the Order of the Garter, G-A-R-T-E-R, -E headed by the British Royal Family and British Peerage. So the they still have a position, the Knights Templars, within the City of London, okay? The City of London Corporation, Knights Templar, and Order of the Garter all use the same red cross as a symbol. Okay, same same cross, okay? Also, Malta uses the same cross, but Malta connects to these Knights Templar things. So, the Knights Templar were merchants and bankers that held gold for pilgrims who traveled to Jerusalem and provided them with banknotes, which were used at the Templars' merchant shops along the way. The Knights of Templar established modern banking. London merchants have a monopoly on gold and silver, which they use as leverage over the markets and monetary systems, and I don't really think I believe that. But they also went on to say, they also manipulate the price of gold and silver from London. 
The Templar merchant and banking system is rigged and functions like covert mo monopolies through hidden corporate conglomerations. Well, I have to agree with that. <laughs> these things are connected and then they, you know, they have all these tax havens and this country has tax havens within this country and I don't know, all over the place. So anyways, foreign members of the Order of the Garter include King Juan Carlos of Spain, King Carl Gustav of Sweden, Queen Margaret II of Denmark, King Harold V of Norway, Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, and Emperor Akioto of Japan. They are members of the Order of the Garter because they covertly do business in London. Okay, so the royal people come under this garter business, okay? And this is what I'm going to say about this because if I go any deeper, it's going to become or appear to be confusing. So let's leave the city of London there. The only reason, and I mean the only reason I'm sharing my research is in the hopes that you will pick up the ball in different areas and run with it yourself and go look. Spend less time on social media and nonsense and use those eyes to figure this story out. We got here because there wasn't enough looking going on. So I highly encourage you to look further because right now I am just sharing with you where I'm fumbling along in this thing and a million pieces are now coming together for me and who these people are. So anyhow, so let me go ahead and I'm going to pick up on the other side here because um, this is, um, it, the file will be too long. So I'll pick up on the other side with this stuff. like to close with a few things. Thank you very much for joining me today. I am pretty much of the mind that the Khazars, K-H-A-Z-A-R-S, are the people we are looking for. But I will be taking a look at these dates of things and see if that triggers anything in my brain. Any comments, you're certainly welcome to put them down over at the website. There is no way you can be traced for your comments. Just put in any name or any email address. So we set it up that way so you can have your own privacy. And that way you can say whatever you feel like saying. Um, let me close with a few things here. I did take a look at the Bible. You know, their controlled, possibly controlled opposition. Kind of like their Wikipedia for religious stuff. Okay. There was a couple that I found interesting. A couple Bible quotes about money. Money is their best trick. I thought my whole life I thought money was a root of all evil never having picked up a Bible. So let me I found this quote. Timothy 6 colon 10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Luke twelve fifteen, And he said to them Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
It's not about what you own. It's about the core of who you are. Everybody wants to be somebody else. And another interesting thing that I will say here, you know, they have all these names for all these generations. They start off with the lost generation. That's the one that I think is relevant to us. And that was uh, around 1890. But so they go through these generations, okay? Interestingly enough, around the time frame we're looking at, the um, 1901 to 1913, that was the interbellum generation. 1910 to 1924, the greatest generation. Now that's interesting because that coincides with when they supposedly rigged up this country, right, in 1913. So yeah, so going down this list, because the last generation before this current one is the I-Gen or Gen Z. Z is the last letter of the alphabet. Z is also the name for that little guy in Ukraine. And Z also corresponds with the Wolf's Angel logo. What are they trying to tell us? And the generation that we're currently in is called the Generation Alpha. Alpha. That went from 2013 to 2025, which would put 2013 a hundred years past the, when they started this thing, right? Okay, so Alpha is a generation 2013 to 2025. What does Alpha mean? Well, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. So, it's a code word representing the word letter A used in radio communication. Alpha, alpha males, alpha, new beginning. Is that what they're saying here? I really do not know. My head right now is swirling with questions. And the music you will be hearing, the music finds me. <clears throat> I absolutely don't find it. It just a hum, a tune will enter into my head. I'll look it up probably haven't heard the tune for 50 years and here it is Jackson Brown and it is called Running on Empty be safe out there goodbye for now